What is going on, Freedom Pact? I am so excited today to welcome today's guest on. We have Dr. Gareth Ward. Gareth has a PhD in physics with his thesis on the manipulation of sound with acoustic metamaterials. Gareth is a keen self-experimentalist, and I know him more informally for completely turning his life around. Gareth went through a significant amount of changes in his life. He lost 95 pounds and he's undergone a number of psychological paradigm shifts throughout his life. Lewis and I are here today to delve into Gareth's universe. Dr. Gareth Ward, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Joe. That's very exciting. Very nice intro you've got for me there. I feel kind of uh, flattered by that. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a pleasure as always. So, Let's start off today's show by, let's first ask, uh, where did you find yourself, say, 10 years ago? Um, so, I guess if we're going back to before I started changing my, my life around completely, I'd say probably about 12 years ago, if I'm, I'll be precise, being a physicist. <laughs> um, I was in a bad place, you know, I was getting worse. Uh, every day I would come home from school, which was never much fun because I didn't really have many friends. You know, I'd, I'd be, I was suspecting that some of my closest friends started to hate me. Um, you know, people stopped inviting me to things. People didn't want to have me around. Um, and all I was doing was coming home every day, just playing on World of Warcraft, godforsaken game. <laughs> Very fun game, but not if you're not, if you're not careful, it can take over your life, which it did mine. Um and I was going nowhere. My school grades were really bad compared to what they should have been. Uh, I knew I could do better, but I didn't care. I didn't want to. Um, and I was just a bit of a wreck, really. Nothing in my life was going as I wanted it to go. Um, and I was constantly at war with myself over what should be done. But every time I thought about it, which you do think about a lot when, you, when you're in those situations, even if you're not necessarily doing anything about it, I would just put it off and go and escape to World of Warcraft or whatever else caught my fancy at the time hmm. what do you think was you know the the main reason for the the way that you found yourself then was it that sense of escapism you found in those type of games or were you unhappy with your life in general or oh absolutely so to give the, the people some context um when i was 17 16 17 i was a very obese person i was a uh, 18 and a half 19 stone i don't actually know what the full scale of my problem was because at, the, at my peak i didn't even measure i didn't want to know all I know is that clothes were getting ridiculous. I was always having to buy new jeans and things every every summer after. But when I would start a new school season, I would have to buy new jeans, new shirts. Um, and the first thing people would look at me when they saw me would think, oh, what's that What's that guy? You know, who is this person? Yeah, I'd struggle to get out of the bath. Um, I would be laughed at and made fun of by girls in the classes and boys too. I would be afraid to go swimming because I'd take my t-shirt off and that would expose all everything in daylight, even though I couldn't exactly hide under a t-shirt. But, you know, you have weird thoughts when you're in those situations. Um, so things like games and, and other bad things, such as pornography and, you know, the, the usual problems of uh, teenage boys um, were really just ways to just numb my brain to everything, to just forget about everything. You know, live in a world where I could be this character who was really fast, strong and had all these quests that could go on heroic missions and people respected them. And there I was just spending all my time in that world instead of the real world. Mm. So what do you think, uh, when you think back to that time, 
what what would you say the psychological contrasts are from where you are then to where you are now? I think the biggest one is just now I'm so much more aware of when I have a problem and, and what problems are and what that I need to do something about them. Whereas back then, I would do my best to not be aware. I'd, I I sort of had the mantra in my head that ignorance is bliss. Um, and so anything to ignore my problems, or, you know, that, that'd be me doing it, be it eating or gaming or whatever else. Um, whereas now, if I see a problem forming in my life somewhere, I know that I've got to take active steps to do that. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. So I think that's the biggest contrast. Mm. Um, yeah. So was it, was there a sense of, of sort of trying to uh, escape from your problems? This was the sort of situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I had dreams in my head, but they were just dreams, you know, even simple little things. Like it, was, it used to be a dream of mine just to be able to speak to a girl, for example, which sounds ridiculous, but it's something I never did. I was too afraid. And because any interaction I would have had with a girl back then would have been ridicule. And I was so self-conscious and, you know, just not in a good place. Um, yeah. So anything to escape from that. Certainly. Were there any health complications which you noticed back then? Yeah, there were. Um, actually, doctors warned me every time I went to a doctor, you know, you have to lose weight. You know, from the age of like 13, 12, when I'd get ill, they would come in. I would go in, go into a doctor and, and they would say, well, you know, your, your diet and things are clearly not helping here. And they'd be afraid to say it in front of me because um, they were all upset me. You know, they kind of needed to. And it was just embarrassing. It was embarrassing for me and it was embarrassing for my parents that this had to be a thing. Um, and there's lots of other little things too. And my skin was terrible. I, like I say, difficulty just doing simple things like getting out of bed. So it'd be easy for me to just lie still all day. Heart rate was terrible, you know, uh, sweating constantly. In fact, one weird thing that used to keep happening, now I think about it, um, two weird things. First of all, I used to get migraines regularly. Um, and that hasn't really happened since I lost weight. Second of all, I used to wake up in the middle of the night uh, and my my legs, my calves would be cramping like crazy. That used to be a regular occurrence. Um, and I've heard other people who used to be obese have similar, similar issues with that. It was an interesting little, little thing. Yeah. Um, was, I mean, before you actually made the decision to, to change that, were you like aware of the problems that or the implications they could have? But how did you keep, what was it that made you keep ignoring them at first, do you think? There's quite a few things uh, to answer that. Um, one of the big things, which I guess is a whole different conversation, was at the time I was a very religious person. So um, I would, I would constantly do when I could see that I had a, had a problem. Like I used to go into the bathroom and see myself in the mirror and like sort of slap myself, slap the little fat parts just in anger. Like, why, why am I like this sort of thing? Uh, but I would just pray to God, but not in a useful way, just be like, oh, please get rid of me, fix me, get rid of this stuff. But basically offload my problems onto some other entity, mm. not actually taking care of it myself. Um, and I can go into the story of how that all changed. Um, but that was one big thing. Um, what was the other, the other things that stopped me? I guess it was just at the time I didn't want to know, so I, did, I wasn't really even that aware that this was a long-term problem. Uh, like I say, I keep putting it off and just distracting, distracting myself, not worrying about it. That's a real interesting one. Would you say that it was some sort of responsibility issue type thing? Absolutely, yeah, and that's that's definitely the case for for, for me and food problems and that. I just didn't want, did not want to take responsibility for what I'd done to myself. Like I'd, I'd always say to other people, for example. Um, Oh, I, you know, I eat healthy. I eat loads of salad. I eat loads of food, but it's the right healthy food. But I'm, yeah, I'm still fat. You know, not counting the fact that I also have at least two or three Mars bars a day. And um, one of my favorite meals to have, but well, things in general would be at uh, 10, 11 p.m., put on fresh Prince of Bel Air, uh, make eight crackers with butter on and half a block of cheese. And that was a regular thing. 
uh, just do that in the middle of the night. I'd already had dinner and everything. As well as, you know, things like pot noodles and hot dogs and other snacks are just lying around the house. Even now, actually, when I go back home, I still fall into that a bit because there's so much junk food everywhere. Because, you know, it's not my parents' fault. They just didn't know. One question I'd like to know is, is I think about myself in my own life. I've been in, in bad places, but I, I, I feel like I've always had that sense of, of, of a sort of hope. I feel like I've always, did Did you have that hope back then? Because I'll give you an example of what, what makes me uh, question this is because... I, if, if you go to Gareth's blog, which will be linked in the description below, you'll be able to see a picture of Gareth in his teenage years and then a picture of him in his 20s. Where, and if you just see the weight difference where Gareth now in, in, his, in his 20s shows clear ab definition in, in you know, clear uh, below 10% body fat with significant muscle mass. Did you ever envisage that? Did you think that was a reality back then at all? No, it was completely outside of my realm of thought. Like, to even think about something like that would cause me discomfort. I just didn't want to do it. Because see, the thing is, to even have that as a dream or a goal um, would require me to accept that I was wrong in the moment. And I didn't want to think about that. I mean, it's even weird now looking back because I've got the case of knowledge now. I know what it's like to be aware of this stuff. I just wasn't aware. I was completely unaware, you know. Um, I, I often wish I could go back and just put my head in my head back then and see what on earth I was thinking. I was doing those things like eating random bits of food at random times of the day can can you attribute um a specific moment that you remember where you thought to yourself you know enough is enough and you you, re you recognize that there was a need for change and you were ready to actually make that change i absolutely can um i've thought about this a great deal the past couple of years um i've been doing a lot of journaling and this this is one of the if i could sort of i won't go into it too much but i could sort of put my life in different epochs and the, the one big one, the big change that I would give to everything to get me where I am now, I remember it clearly. I'd come home from school. Uh, it was in uh, winter of, I think it was, must have been 2007. Um, and me and your brother, actually, uh, had been playing on that World of Warcraft game. And for six weeks, every week, we had to, we'd scheduled in to do this thing, player versus player, where you would play against other teams um, and if you did well enough, you'd get a certain amount of points, which you could then save up and spend on armor for your character. And now there are, just to give you an example of how crazy this is, there, there would be some like 10 or 11 different items you'd have to get from a certain set. And each one of those items would take six, seven, eight weeks if you were average, maybe five weeks if you were really good, four weeks. And we were pretty average. So what happened was I had finally saved up enough points to buy one of this set. Um, pair of leggings it was um and i bought it with on, on the side i was really excited about this couldn't wait to get home from school all day because the clock had changed and all the stats had updated i've had these points in my account and i got in and uh and i you know i excitedly rushed to the place where you get them from in this world and i, I put the pants equipped them and then suddenly i just had this epiphany i was like it was extremely disappointing and it just all came rushing in like i was i just got really emotional actually um I sort of, I just, I could see, I was thinking to myself, what, what am I doing in my life? That this has been my goal for the past six weeks. And here it is. I've got these new things and some stats have changed on this, on this bit of code that someone's written. And, you know, and I've just been dead. I've been focused on it for the last six, seven weeks. Like, what am I doing in my life? And it, it was crazy. It was like the floodgates suddenly opened. Um, I, then that there and then I closed uh, World of Warcraft and I said to Tom, Joe's brother, um, that I'm going to the gym. Um, and uh, that night, I called a bus to Pontypridd, and just 
found the nearest gym and just started. And obviously the journey does take you know dedication and commitment. And do you think that that was something you realized because as you mentioned with like the games and things, obviously that does take a certain level of commitment to commit to something. Did you realize that you could be putting that same amount of energy in, into something more physically practical? Yes, I, I sort of dawned on me that you know if I, if I can put this much effort into a game which doesn't actually mean anything, then surely I could use the same concepts and same drive to feel myself to do something about my body. Um, and that was obviously a really big motivator. And of course, having hit that, that, that period of sort of rock bottom, of sort of realizing that everything is not going to plan, um, I was very driven by this idea that I was going to finally fix myself. And, you know, I started to think about all the things I'd finally be able to sort out. And instead of thinking about, oh, I have new stats to be able to kill this thing this much faster in this video game, I started to think, oh, I could actually sort myself out and, and be respectable and you know it wouldn't be the, it was a goal of mine to not be the first thing someone's looked at me like they think oh look at this look at this fat person just walking around you know just and at the time as well that obesity wasn't as bad as it is these days so i really stuck out um <clears throat> so yeah that was definitely helpful can you remember if you had any influences back then that really you looked up to during that period uh yeah um there were a few things so i mentioned the whole religious thing um so one of the things that really got me to sort of take responsibility for myself, as well as that whole epiphany about, you know, what am I doing in my life, was in that same week, I started to question um, some of my deeply held religious beliefs, which I never really thought of. They were just imp imprinted on me from a very young age. Um, and it's a bit weird thing to think about, but I, I just finished reading this book called The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. Um, now, you would not think about that book as a self-improvement book in general, because it's all about how evolution works. But what that book did for me, uh, and a few YouTube channels too, is that there's some famous YouTubers who are very atheist, um, was it sort of freed me from a lot of the, I was very much afraid to think in this way back then, because if, if you're properly religious and you really believe these things, you're afraid to think against God because you don't want to be punished for it. But reading those books made me understand how it could be a different way and remove that fear. And what I actually found was quite amazing for me was suddenly prayer didn't become an option anymore. Um, so. I had to take responsibility for these things. I couldn't keep uploading them onto God. So yeah, in a weird way, I would say Richard Dawkins was one one influence. Um, Pat Condell was another atheist YouTuber I just mentioned who also helped me with these sort of things. And even one called The Amazing Atheist, which is a funny old YouTube channel. But it was just, it was really refreshing to see some of my deeply held beliefs taken apart in a logical way. That's amazing. So so after you decide to make that decision, and and Lewis and, and I, we were just speaking in the car on the way down about decisions where people think the decisions are, you know, they are a, a, a process. You know, when someone says that, you know, it took me, my life changed over two years. It didn't. It just took you two years to come to the decision that changed your life. Yeah. You know, so after you made that decision to take responsibility, where did the journey take you next? Oh, well, it was a massive learning experience. I mean, it's exciting to think back to all the things. It's weird now because obviously I've done so much reading. I know so much. But back then, I knew absolutely nothing about nutrition, diet, exercise, anything at all. Um, and what I actually did, the first time I went to the gym, um, which is at the time I helped, I helped re realize was a really big thing for me, not just because I've not been to a gym before, but because I was such a social reject. Even talking to someone else was a big thing. So for me to go through that gym door and sign up, that took, you know, that was a really scary thing for me to do. Can I just jump in by it? So, so... 
when you try to beat this sort of social anxiety, was do you have any tips at house, any books, anything someone could use to to, to try to beat that? Uh, well, the, the the things that made me beat that at the time was just there was so much on the line. Um, and I was like, well, you know, am I going to let myself be scared by this thing that clearly everyone else can deal with? So why can't I? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just knowing what my goal was in advance. And my oh, goal was yeah. get in there, sign up the gym. There was no, you've got to remove the amb- ambiguity. As I usually find for anxiety, which is something I still struggle with, it's ambiguity that uh, that causes the trouble when I don't know how something's going to go. And you've got to learn to be comfortable with that. Yeah. So so after you decide to uh, to head to the gym, what were some of the lessons which you learned since then in, say, training, nutrition, mindset? There's so much, obviously. Um, but I guess... At the time, when I first went, I didn't have a clue. And no, nobody does. It's quite intimidating walking to a gym. There's a million machines everywhere. You know, everyone around seems to know what they're doing, especially if you're overweight and, and you're clearly, you know, not in shape and, and flubbing around. Like when I used to go on the treadmill, it makes it a racket. Um, uh, but what I've learned, first and foremost, is that, which is a big thing for some people, uh, I find, when you're in the gym, you don't need to worry about what other people think of you, um, especially if you're overweight or whatever, like I was. Um, because what I actually found is after going in for a bit, people would give me major respect. They are well done. You, you really make an effort here. You know, member of the month sort of things. So I just started going every other day. Um, so that was a big thing for me, realizing that, I mean, people, it's a cliche. People have said it sacks of times, but people in the gym are too worried about themselves to be worried about what you're doing. So, unless you're doing some really stupid, like throwing things at people, obviously. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that was a big uh, thing that was really helpful. Um, but in terms of nutrition and all the rest of it, it's funny how I started. I just did what anyone would do, I guess. I walked to the nearest Tesco and bought a muscle, muscle fitness magazine, um, which it's funny people rag on those magazines because they are full of all kinds of nonsense just to try to sell things. But for someone who really didn't have a clue, it was a start. And after the first month where I started to go to the gym and I didn't worry about diet because as I, as I thought at the time, the only thing that mattered was exercise. That was what I wasn't doing. I wasn't doing any exercise. A lot of people think that. And, you know, that's true. You do need to exercise. But I did not appreciate that I also need to do, get on the diet. Because after a month of going to the gym religiously, running 40 minutes at a time or whatever, nothing had really changed. Um, and that, what I was still doing is coming home and eating loads of cheese afterwards or compensating for it. I was hungry, obviously. And uh, so after the first month, I bought one of these magazines and realized then, oh, actually, it's the diet that has to change, not the exercise. And that's actually a much harder thing. It shouldn't be because you don't actually have to do anything. It's just not eating. But actually, it's very hard because there is so much junk out there and it's so hard to control what you eat if you don't pay any attention to it. Um, so this magazine basically dictated to me for a month at a time what I should eat every day, like literally every single meal every day, six, seven meals a day. And I just followed it like a religion. Um, it was kind of funny considering I'd just come from a different religion. Um, <laughs> so, but this, this has become my new religion. Um, and I started seeing results. Um, so, you know, people have often worry. So I guess another thing I would take from all this People often worry, what should I do right? How am I going to get this perfectly right? And you shouldn't worry about that. The thing that worked for me the first time, I would never advise someone to do what I did, which was eat six, seven meals a day. And they're all like 100, 200 calories each. Um, you're really high carb and all this stuff. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't very pleasant. But the important thing was, it was less calories than I needed to use. And so I, so I lost weight successfully. That's the only thing that actually matters. Um, you know, you go to plenty, plenty of places to have much more information on this, but... There's loads of studies I've shown now, carbs, protein, fat. The only thing that really matters is calories in, calories out. So that would be the first thing I would say to people who are trying to lose weight, worrying about, you know, oh, should I do low carbs, should I do keto, all this stuff. You're overcomplicating it. 
just make sure you log what you're actually writing and be conscious of what you're reading. Um, and for me, following this like this uh, guide on what to eat like a Bible did that for me because it took it took the uh, it took that moment of uncertainty out of your mind, which is where even now these days I'm trying to lose weight to just you know for the beach or whatever. Um, it slips in like um, for example, I'll give you an example. Last week, um, I was in a rush in the morning, and what I usually do is I like to log my calories for the day in advance if I'm trying to get somewhere. Um, it only takes about a minute. You know, it's not hard. Just get in, go into the cupboard, get what food you got for the evening, get it out ready now. Um, but I didn't do that. So I just grabbed what I thought I needed from the fridge, just estimate, you know, guessing, oh, I'll have three slices of this, I'll stick some protein powder in a thing. Took it to work, uh, ate that, and didn't measure how much milk I used when I was in work, so I'll deal with this later. Got home, tired, you know, so after a long day of work, you've been out thinking about other things. Um, and when I got in, I was like, oh, I should probably love my calories. Now, I didn't. And just stuck, chuck, chucked them on chicken in the pan, chucked the oil in without really measuring, and ate whatever, that, whatever was in front of me, as well as then some hot chocolates after and some rice cakes with Marmite on, a little guilty pleasure of mine these days. And I forced myself to sit down after this uh, and, and actually log what I'd eaten after the fact. And I was six, 700 calories over what I should have eaten, purely because I couldn't be bothered in the morning to think about it in advance. Um, uh, just so even just doing that, it's, it's all about being conscious of what you're doing, I think is the is the key point there. Exactly. And, and it goes to show how, how important, you know, when you're trying to make big changes, the proactivity in these instances is. What uh, are some of the other uh, early mistakes which you made, say, in your nutrition, your fitness journey, which you think you could say to someone, don't do this and it will save you X amount of time? Um, I think uh, one of the things was that whole idea of eating little but often, which is quite a miserable thing to do, to be honest. Um, luckily at the time, I was so fueled by annoyance at myself that I, 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 went, I went through it anyway. And there was a bit of like a like a pilgrimage in a way. Like I made myself suffer because I had 17 years of eating whatever the hell I liked. Um, but you don't need to do that. Um, I would say just have your two or three meals a day. You don't necessarily need to have breakfast. Um, that's something that's overrated. Um, and keep it simple. Don't bother complicating it with thinking I need to have malt loaf and this soup and that extra bit of nutrition. So just just something simple, meat and veg, you know, that's all you need to do. Meat and some veg and do that twice. Simple. And if, you, if you're pressed for time, you can use things like protein shakes. Yeah, they're not perfectly brilliant nutritional wise, but people start worrying about those things. They get lost in the details. And it's that old thing about don't let perfection be the enemy of good enough. And I find... Um, if I'm limited in my choices uh, and I can just have to just have to pick some meat and some veg or something, I don't have to worry about where am I getting this vitamin from. I just tend to do so much better because I'm not worried about it too much. Um, I'll give you an example the other week. I was away for a week on a training course um, and it was after Christmas and Christmas, I always let myself off at Christmas. Who doesn't? Um, and I've still got the capacity to eat like a pig. Um, so I did. Uh, but, you know, that's fine once a year. Um, and after Christmas, I was starting to lose weight again because to get rid of the Christmas weight. Uh, wasn't doing too well, but on this training course week, I was on the move all day, and the only opportunity I had to eat was at lunchtime, where there was a Sainsbury's next door, and at home on the way home there was there were a few uh, restaurants and like takeaway foods, but one of them just sold Perry chicken for cheap, five pound for half chicken. Um, so what I did, I just had that every night, you know, no questions about it. I just knew that's what I was having. I wasn't gonna let myself deliberate over whether I should get a subway or something else. Um, and I lost so much weight that week, just because the decision to be made for me, and I kept it simple. 
and at lunchtime as well i just bought packs of ham or whatever from sainsbury's um and one of the i guess one of the problems you go into face which i've i think is worth mentioning is the social aspect i think this is still the biggest challenge to me is when you're out and about with other people who not aren't overweight or anything but maybe have never had to think about their body and what, what they're eating you do tend to get weird looks when you do things like eat two packs of ham for dinner with some nando sauce because it's not a normal thing to do they're like oh what no bread no no salad and people will judge you for it and they'll they'll think you're weird but you know i, I mean it's so long since i've got over that so i can't even comprehend people who still worry about those things just because but i understand it because i do the same thing but uh it's a weird thing now, but I, but I see other people struggling with it. People who are trying to lose weight, they're like, oh, well, without my family. And, you know, I didn't want to be the guy who just had the salad instead of the chips. You just you just have to some some point draw a line and make that clear. Um, and, yeah, as you do it once or twice, then people will stop questioning it. Oh, he's the healthy guy. And it's fine. You know, you just have to get over that initial hurdle. But it's a big thing, social eating. Yeah. Um. So aside from the actual you know, physical changes and, and the things you learned to do practically in terms of the exercise and food was, um, you know, mentality and, and frame of mind. Uh, did you face any challenges with that? You know, like waking up and thinking, you know, I, I want to take a day off or like you said, with the social things, like was, was that hard to try and train um, mentally? Yeah, it certainly was. Now, I was blessed in a way, um, funny to lose to me, uh, in that I started doing this when I was 16, 16 and a half. So alcohol wasn't a problem then. Now I'm finding these days uh, it's be- uh, that is a problem, and that's, that's obviously a whole different topic. But for weight loss specifically, it is because what you'll ha- what'll happen is um, if you do have a few drinks, you just stop caring, and specifically the day after will be when you start eating, and it just like I can't bother today, um, and that can be challenging. But at the time, what I found was really useful was every time I woke up in the morning, I'd be excited to go and weigh. You know, because, you know, you might have this new pair of pants or something that hasn't quite fit, but maybe it fits you a bit better that day. Mm. Um, and that's really, really motivating. And crystallizing that in your mind, having that thought clear is addictive. Um, and what you'll find is when this only happens after you've been on a bit of a roll, doesn't, it's hard to get started. Once you get started, what will happen is this this addiction to that good feeling becomes so strong that in the evening when you're like, oh, should I have a, a chocolate now or a biscuit or a cake or whatever, you know, those temptations you just don't want to it's just it would, it would, it would be, it'd be like trying to eat uh, like rat poison or something you just don't want to do it because you're so focused on getting that good feeling in the morning because you like you get this sort of clean feeling which is becomes quite addictive um and that still happens now um if i get on a streak um yeah uh but like i say that's something that you start to notice when you're on a streak so you've just got to start uh, if you, after like a week or two it becomes easy it's funny like i've got other friends who've lost loads of weight and they've experienced the same thing they'll have one or, one or two good weeks and then they'll mess it up because of some event some social event and then they're back to square one but if they just managed to get through that one social event then they go on to week three and then the progress really starts showing you really get into it then that takes over that momentum gets so strong and then they go on six seven month run just like i did and they've also lost loads of weight um so yeah it's about building that momentum that's, I think that's the biggest uh, barrier against those temptations. Not wanting to ruin it. You know, it's like you got, you're on a streak, 30-day streak or something. You don't want to ruin it by some silly little thing. It becomes a, it becomes its own temp- power. It has its own power over you. So as you're on your weight loss journey, you're losing vast amount of weight. You're working out frequently. What are some of the uh, 
the best way I could say is sort of psychological changes, this the boosts in self esteem, the confidence, the aura, which 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 comes from these types of things. That also the the health benefits, the the feelings, the vibrancy. This, this is an interesting question. There were so many things that happened. Um, so the, the main thing here, uh, which other people who would be on a similar weight loss journey will probably uh, sympathize with, is it doesn't happen instantly, because, you know, all your life you've been treated in a certain way because you're you're you know there's, there's no doubt about it people do treat you worse if you're overweight and um, because this it brings about some even if it's not conscious some kind of disgusting so you're used to all your reference points of everything that's happened in your life are based around that and now you're thinner or getting thinner and people aren't noticing that about you anymore um so it takes time to build up these new reference points and what you what i found the first time i started go to see new meet new people when i'd lost weight it was like i was living a different life so one really good example of this, um, once when I'd lost about three or four stones, so I wasn't, I wouldn't say lean at this point, but I also wasn't obviously fat. Um, I went up to my cousins who lived up in, uh, where was it? Near Bryce Norton, RAF base up in, I can't remember where it was, somewhere in England. Reading, there we go. Um, was it Oxford? Doesn't matter. Anyway, um, what happened was he took me out to see some of his friends whom I've never met any of before. This is a completely new social circle. Um, it was amazing. Like uh, I would meet them and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't sort of look at me in the, in the same sort of way without disgust. I was like another person and they'd start talking to me, asking me about things. That's something I've never experienced before. Like I couldn't remember experiencing that even when I was a kid because I'd been fat since I was like three or four years old. Um, one thing that was absolutely amazing, I still remember this moment clearly in my head, was when we'd met a girl and she actually gave me a hug when we all departed. And I was like, wow. So that's what it's like to like be normal, you know? Uh, that was really a, a crazy day. Uh, I met so many people that day. And actually, ever since that moment, um, that gave me even more motivation to, to spur me on and, and carry on doing things. And I absolutely love meeting new people now ever since then and getting all these new experience points. And as you get thinner and thinner, you get more and more of these reference points. And gradually, your mind, your self-esteem catches up. Like nowadays... My self-esteem is much, much higher than it used to be, um, to the point where I would say it was higher than the average person's. Whereas back then, you know, I was really down in the dumps. Um, patience, I guess, is a thing for that one. Is there, I mean, as you start to change and you actually see physical changes, does that sort of um, get rid of all the anxiety or is this still that sort of mentality left? Because, like, I think I remember when I came to visit you in Aberystwyth, I was at the stage where I was confident with the way I looked, but because of the way I've always been, I still couldn't like take my shirt off at the beach and you practically yeah. had to rip it off of me. Do you remember? <laughs> and I had no reason to think like that. Um, mm-hmm. other than that's the way I've always been conditioned to think. No, I can I can um so did did that happen over time or did was that something you had to change mentally? <laughs> no, that was definitely a slow change um for me as well. Um because obviously, isn't not you might have looked, you might start to look better, and I start to look reasonably attractive. I'm pretty reasonably attractive now, compared to how, especially compared to how it used to be. Um, and you you just don't know, like you because you've never been in the situations with say the opposite sex or even the same sex where people are sort of treating you with that kind of respect. You just don't know what it's like when someone is attracted to you, for example. And I think back to some situations where which I was in, and I was so oblivious, and it, it just kind of cringe thinking back. Um, but yeah, that certainly was fun for me. Uh, one thing, for example, um, when I first started uh, getting reasonably good at flirting with the opposite sex, 
um, if things got a bit intimate, I would refuse to take off my T-shirt because I've got terrible loose skin. Still have. Um, the only way I've, I've long past accepted it. The only way I'm going to get rid of that is if I go under the knife, which would be extremely dangerous and extremely expensive. You're looking at six, seven grand at least. Um, but you know what? what it's funny because I know other people who still struggle with this. My loose skin doesn't bother me anymore because I've only ever had a positive response. Because by the time, let's say I'm talking to a girl or, or say with my current, even my current girlfriend, um, by the time they get to that point where they're seeing this loose skin becomes a thing, you're, you're, you're already when the moment based on other things. So they actually see it as a scar and I see it as a scar of what I've achieved. Um, and like, look, look, this is what I, my damage I've done my body, but yet I'm still now, you know, where I am now. And that could actually be a plus. Um, so I find that funny. And it's a you do some funny party tricks too. Um, and at the end of the day, what, what you uh, got to also realize is that let's say I did have now a perfect six pack abs and no, no loose skin or anything. Well, then I would look just like everybody else who was like that. Um, so in a way, it gives me that other sort of unique character. Mm. Um, as far as the uh, the positive benefits which you experienced, how did other areas of your life, barring the, uh, the social improve did you grade your ac academics well i imagine they did because you did get a phd so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no um it was actually quite amazing um yeah okay uh, so the summer after i lost most of my weight i'd come back to school um and it actually was at a levels i think yeah it was between first and second year of a levels um and i remember walking to a math class and sitting down and we started doing the work and it, it was really weird that my mind was so clear. I was starting to I could do like the sums in my head. It was, I mean, it's hard to explain it if you've not experienced it, but everything just seemed to be there when it wasn't there. There was like a cloud, like a, a fog over your head, and which obviously I was completely unaware of having lived like that all my life. And suddenly everything was brighter, clearer, sharper. I could think more quickly. It was honestly, it was amazing. I, I'd be interested to see how much research that people have done on this. I guess it's a hard thing to research. People have lost substantial amounts of weight just to see whether their intelligence improves. But I'm certain, I'm certain that it did. Like, and then that's after that then, of course, having lost all this weight, it started to be, well, what else can I apply the sort of willpower motivation to? And, you know, I, I started to think about my grades, A-levels and so forth and managed to turn them around because I was, for example, I got my PhD in physics, but my first ever physics exam, I got something like a C or low, low C in for A-level, which is shocking looking back because it's such an easy exam. But, you know, that's the first one of the six you have to do. Um, and that just wasn't on, really. You know, what my, again, I might have started doing, losing the weight, but what else, you know, when, once you started looking at things in your life from this new lens, you start to see other other kinds of problems. And the other one that became obvious was that I wasn't giving it my all and all these other things. Um, so that's, I remember that's that Christmas after I first lost weight. It's also the first time I'd actually properly revised for exams and like spent a good month or two beforehand learning all the questions and actually doing the work. And then sure enough, my physics levels got much better. And then ended up going to a good university, um, which is Exeter University, which uh, was a top 10 university at the time and particularly good for physics. And that's obviously set me up for the rest of my career and where I am now. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's weird how one domino falls and especially if it's something to do with your brain and, and paying attention to things. One domino falls and then all other things in your life start improving. So, you know, I started to get fitter too, running faster. Um, I started to put myself out there in situations I went, might have done so before because I wanted to learn how to do it. Uh, I would start to do things like organize my files, you know, silly little things like that, but just things that I would just rather not have thought about before. 
And it's like, actually, come on, let's let's uh, take what I've learned in this weight loss area and apply it to other things. And I'm still doing that today, obviously. And as I said in the introduction, you're a keen self-experimentalist. One thing which I found out just before was that you did a, a bicycle ride from your house to, to Exeter. How many miles must that be? It was supposed to be 126 miles, but it was a bit longer because I had the, right at the end, after 13 hours of cycling, I took a wrong turn, um, which is very, very annoying. Ah, man, that moment. Anyway, um, yeah, so it must have been 130 miles. That was a really weird thing that I did when I think back to it. But I think that's a good example of the kind of, you know what, we're just going to try it and see. And I had contingency plans if it didn't work. So for the listeners, basically, this came about uh, in my second year of uni. I needed to to get my bicycle down to the university. And my dad's car wasn't really big enough to fit it in. I mean, it probably could have. But this pernicious idea just appeared in my brain, which was, why not just cycle to Exeter? Which is quite a long way to do, considering I've not done any kind of endurance sport before. Nothing, nothing like a marathon or anything. The first I've ever ran at the time was about, probably about 5k, probably. Um, no train, no real training. I did a test run to Bristol. My bike wasn't set up properly. It wasn't the right height seat or anything. And I just got out that morning and just said, right, I'm going to cycle to Exeter today. You know, I made sure that the weather and the route all planned out, of course. So I wasn't completely stupid. Um, and yeah, and I just set off. And people would ask me, "What? Why are you doing that?" And somebody, honestly, the reason that the main reason I did it was just because it came an idea in my head. And just like with the weight loss, I wanted to prove myself that I could do something like that. Being there's no real reason I couldn't do it. And uh, and I still feel the pain to this day when I walked into that house that evening. Fourteen hours, thirty minutes, and fifty-eight seconds is how long it took me to do that bicycle ride. And it was <laughs> nasty. I couldn't pee probably for two weeks afterwards. <laughs> and I'd just moved into a house which where I lived on the third floor. So that was a good start. And that's that's a clear example of, of having the, the confidence, the sense of sufficiency, which that weight loss journey, that their increased confidence, all those things which they gave to you at the same time, to have that audacity to attempt something like that. Yeah, and even now when I think of some ridiculous challenge, which you usually know if a challenge is... Not impossible, because obviously some things are just impossible. Like I'm, I'm not going to challenge myself to run from here to Africa or something. But something which would be useful in some way, but it is beneficial, but even but it's going to be hard. So um, in this case, it was getting my bike down to Exeter. I remember seeing the sign when I got to Bristol and I was exhausted. I was considering, oh, am I going to do this? And as I was just leaving Bristol on the A48, I can't remember the name of the road, um, there was a sign that said on the side of the road, A whatever it was, Exeter, 72 miles. I was like, I've got to do this. I've got I've got to go the rest of this way. I've started now. I've got to do this. Um, so I did. Um, and that sort of mental tenacity is, is, a, is a muscle and it's, it's really helped me, helped me do my PhD and lots of other ways, like doing certain experiments and things, which uh, that's a whole other topic, um, where some things seemed like they were just never going to happen. Uh, but you know what? I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to build this array, which takes me two or three hours each time and I have to do it 30, 40 times. I'm going to build this sample, which is going to take me two or three weeks of doing nothing else but putting these things together. Because at the end of the day, it only has to work once, and uh, that's going to get me a paper when it got me a PhD. But that's an example of that tenacity being useful. And then um, you, you can apply that to lots of other things. And um, sometimes there are some jobs which are going to help you in some way, which you don't want to do. You want to think of some clever way of not doing them or speeding them up. But you know what? If you just did it, it would just be done, and that would be that. Yeah, I mean, how much can you attribute that sort of mind over muscle thing? Because, like, I've always thought that for myself. Like, when I ran 
the Cardiff Half Marathon, for example, before race day, I'd never even run 5K before. And I just turned up thinking, well, I'm not going to not do it because I'm not going to let myself not do it. Is that something that you that you you feel is, you know, people when they say they're done, they're not actually quite done. And it, it is often mind over muscle. I think so. Yeah. I mean, but barring things like injury, obviously. Um, but certainly, and I, I, I do see some people who I'm good friends with or whatever, that they have challenges in front of them and they it's too easy to shrug it off and they just, they just can't be bothered. Well, I guess I can't be the wrong word, but they haven't really developed that sort of mental fortitude to get themselves through these things. And I think these days it's all too easy for us because we have easy lives most of us these days. You know, we, we can't complain. We're in, like, in a nice house right now. You know, I drive to work every day. That's nice and easy in my nice car. You know, it's not pretty a car, but it's got air conditioning. I can see out the window. And all these little life luxuries can make us a little bit... bit uh, bit soft i guess on the, on the on the mind um and sometimes you do just need to, to force through um something that a uh a listener wanted me to to find out was that you are you have obviously got a phd as there has been uh already said that is the equivalent of the self-actualization on the maslow's hierarchy in terms of the educational uh pyramid so uh, what would you say the best studying tips, the best times of day, the tactics, the routines in terms of optimizing the academic experience are? So this was a PhD was a good place to learn about those kind of things. Um, so one thing about a PhD and also university degrees, um, obviously PhD on a, on a higher level, is that you are responsible for your learning. That's that's number that's number one, right? Which means. That if you actually do want to get ahead in these in these hard topics, be it computing, be it English, whatever, you need to come up with your own plan and realize that you're not going to be spoon fed like you were in school. I remember when I first started university, that was a big issue for me because I remember going into one of my physics lectures and they would tell us all about these equations and things for you know motion and all the rest of it. Um, and then oh, go away. There's some problems here for you to do, and come back next time. Um, yeah, and we'll and we'll see who's done what. And I'm thinking, all right, well, I'll have a quick look. And I did have a quick look. And I came back the next lesson. And he's like, all right, so who got on with that problem very well, yeah? And there I was expecting him to then go through each problem line by line on the board, take up 20 minutes of lecture. That didn't happen. He just told us the answers. And, you know, if you've got any problems, come back, come to me afterwards. And that was a bit of a, a shock for me because I was expecting, just like A-levels, um, where the teachers are focused on getting the school the highest grades possible, I was going to be spoon-fed all this information. And that was the that was the first thing, and that took me a while to learn in my degree, that you need to take responsibility. And so, what do I mean by that then? Like, what can I actually, what can I actually do to take responsibility? Well, you need a plan. And I, one thing that really helped me during my PhD days, especially when writing the thesis, every morning I would write out a list of goals, like actionable goals. What am I doing today? Um, you know, it had to be somewhat exciting too. It might might be, if I was doing my, my degrees back then do these two past papers and one question from this or read this chapter, you know, just something that you can do. And then when you've done it, you can take it off and you know that you've done some progress, something that day. Um, so anyone out there learning or in, in a degree and struggling, if you wake up in the morning, you start your day the right way. And that makes it the rest of the day so much better. When I was writing my thesis, actually, um, this became extremely important because uh, at that stage, nobody can help you. You are you are the world expert in that thing that you're writing about. And it's entirely up to you to sort out the problems that you're coming across. And if I woke up some days and I didn't sit down and make a list of what I'm going to do that day, 
yeah, I would guarantee just not do anything at all. It, it might be three or four p.m. before I actually started anything, and when I did start something, I'd be all over the place and then get nowhere and waste a day. I mean, I probably could have finished my PhD much earlier had I not done things like that. Um, so yeah, certainly it's planning, plan, plan, plan. Have clear goals because once you've got goals, you can get motivation for those goals. Um, is is there any sort of like mental tricks you have when it comes to studying because for example when i was studying when i was back in school and uni or whatever i used to do the old like the flash cards and i'd revise the same ones at the same time every day and it was actually um your brother actually taught me um he said stop stop doing them all at the same time and he taught me this trick he used to do he used to have a topic and he'd assign it to a number and he'd he'd press this random number generator and they give him it so he wasn't doing things in the same order so he was constantly you know challenging himself in that is there anything like that that, that you practiced oh that's a good that's a good question um what i like to do uh slightly different it would be i guess anyone's you know, the, the tomato technique or the pomodoro technique which is where you work for you, you dedicate yourself to working for say 35 minutes but you're also guaranteeing yourself a 50 minute break at the end of that repeated over and over the day mm. that was one that i used to really find helpful for when i used to be studying because obviously you do in past papers or wherever it is um there's only so much you can focus on and if you've got if you're thinking i have to finish this whole past paper before i can go ahead and do this other thing then you're just not going to do it it's just, you're going to start procrastinating and um, so that was a really helpful thing for me um i would also say that that technique sounds really fun uh, but I would wouldn't worry too much about trying to find out techniques like that because at the end of the day, the only thing that actually matters is hours hours mm. put into what you're doing. There was no way, for example, that I was gonna uh, get high grades in my last year unless I spent weeks on each topic, just doing the past papers over and over again and making sure that I understood them. At the end of the day, learning is just repetition mm. and memory, um, so that's one thing you, you, people can't shy away from. Um, you and can also make, the quality of those hours. Yeah, absolutely. The there's, there's no point, say. Oh, this is where the ultimate technique is useful because you're constantly having breaks. So there's no point having a four or five hour session. And in the, in the last two hours, you're just looking at the words and copying them down verbatim or whatever. It's if you're writing out notes, when you notice yourself doing that, you're like, you know what? This is a waste of time because I'm not taking anything in right now. Go and have a break. So yeah, schedule it, have regular breaks. And on top of that, I'm someone who struggles with procrastination big, in a big way and perfectionism and all this. There's a really good book I read called The Now Habit. Um, I can't remember the author. Um, I guess you can find that out and put it up somewhere. But uh, basically, one of the most powerful things I had from that book was this idea of the unschedule, which was, you know, when you, you want to start work and in the morning and you want to get these things done so you can relax in the evening. But what you might find is that you keep putting off the things you need to do and, and start doing the things you want to relax into doing in the morning. Um, and there's all kinds of psychological reasons for that. But if you say to yourself with this unschedule where you map out the hours of the day, and in the evenings or whatever, you schedule in something that you're going to do, which is fun, which doesn't progress towards that goal. For example, I used to put in, when I was writing my thesis, um, from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., I'm going to just play FIFA for three hours, you know? And I'm, no matter what, that's happening. And it's really, it gives you like a really freeing effect in your brain because then in the morning, you're like, you know what? I don't, there's no point in me doing this now. I'm doing that later. So if I don't do this work now, I won't have time to do it later. And that's usually what you end up what ends up happening anyway if you don't do this is that by six seven eight nine p.m you're guilty that you haven't done anything all day and then you're in you're in that evening panic and before you know it you're up until 2 a.m and exhausted and not really having achieved much um if you just did it earlier the day when you're fresh of course that would be better so that's one really good technique um and also another one along this is another great thing from that book which was 
what's the name of the phrase? Uh, just start. You know what? Don't think about, oh, I've got to do this sentence perfectly, especially when you're writing. Just start writing. It could be gibberish. But you'd be, you'd be amazed by how just five, six minutes, even the first, what I used to do with, if I was really struggling, just set the first tomato period, whatever you want to call it, to just 15 minutes. For 15 minutes, just try and do this one thing. And you'd be amazed at how easy that plays into the 30 and then you're in the role then. Momentum starts again. Um, and that's so true of so many things. Um, and it, once you've got something as well, once you've started on something, especially if it's a new project, be it a new a revision topic or a new exam paper, once you've started, it is so much easier to continue. Um, another thing which was really helpful, which uh, I learned, I don't know if it was from that book, it might be from something else, but it was at the end of, say, a period of work, Never finish at the end of a logical finish point. So, for example, don't finish at the end of a paragraph you just finished writing. Stop just before the end. Because then when you go back to it, be it 50 minutes or the next day, you've got a really easy entry point to get you to finish. And you're not already at the new block of, oh, I've got to start a new paragraph. Um, that's, that was really helpful. Um, Something um, that I found really interesting was you talked about that. Uh, the sort of motivation of having that FIFA game, say, for the three hours at the end of the day. I want to give an example, which actually happened to me today, where I was speaking to one of my good friends, and I've I've known him all throughout. He was a year younger than me in uni. Uh, really, really intelligent guy, good working man. Uh, he was a farmer. He was in a really, really, what I thought was a really secure relationship. They'd been together for years. I remember he was really motivated for his final year of uni. Um, I think that he got there and he sort of had the attitude that work was all, you know, was all there is. And I, I remember him telling me, you know, numerous times that, you know, it was a, a first or bust type thing. That, you know, that that, that real black or white type thinking. Um, he ended up splitting up with his girlfriend around January time. And he missed one of his January exams in some sort of stupor. And I spoke to him today and I said, um, and he was telling me about his grades and they were really, really average and he missed one exam. How important do you think having that sense of balances throughout uh, the, the studying periods? If you're holding yourself up to that standard, this is it's like another branch of perfectionism. If you're holding up to yourself to that standard of black or white, I've got to get this almost perfect or, you know, why bother? Then you're going to start subconsciously making certain things up so that you don't have to meet those standards. Um, there's a really interesting study they've done a few years ago. It was in this, I read about this in this book called Black Box Thinking um, by, Man, so, yeah, Sayed. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Where, um, you probably correct me on exactly the details on this, but it was, he would take, they would take exam students um, and set them up and give them the option of getting drunk before their exam. And it was amazing how many people chose that because that took the responsibility off their shoulders then if they didn't do as well as they hoped because, oh, well, I was drunk. You know, and you'd be amazed how many different ways people, you know, even I myself would do that kind of thing. My second year, for example, I failed an optics exam, which is kind of funny because I ended up doing a postdoc in electromagnetism with which involved optics. Um, but uh, and that was all because I just didn't want to know, and I I was told that my the past papers for that exam, for example, weren't going to be representative of the actual exam, and I had notes and I could have learned, but I didn't because I thought, well. I'm just going to learn from the exam. Maybe I'll get something. And it's not my fault that they changed the, the course. I shouldn't do that. And when I did eventually fail, I was like, well, they should have taught it better. You know, I just didn't want to know. Um, that's a, a good example of not taking responsibility. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you've got you to be happy 
with being unhappy with perhaps your results sometimes if it didn't quite get exactly what you wanted. But you know what? It's so much better to to start work and do something and get 70, 60% of the way there than not there at all. You know, was it, there's that phrase something like, uh, it's better to have a book that's uh, an average book that's published than a perfect book that's still on your computer stored away somewhere. Yeah. And, and I remember actually having a, um, having a debate with one of my personal tutors at the start of my third year. And, uh, he said to me, how many hours of work are you doing a day? And and at the time I was working pretty diligently. I said, you know, I said maybe one to three hours type thing. And and he responded. He goes, what? He said he said you may fail the year. He got he goes. Uh, he he said I've got students who are working thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hours. He said and 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 he said they they're doing you know. He said they're just scraping by. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like that that train of thinking. I said it. They they probably reached such a a diminished point yeah. of returns. Their mind is probably so frazzled and saturated. Right. I said, "There's no, fr- there's no freshness. There's no, there's no concentration." You know, and and, and also, I said, I, "I would love to know the sort of the quality, the effectiveness of that studying." You know, to be doing fifteen hours of study in a day and to, to just be scraping by. Well, and I can't say there's no chance. You, I can't work more than four hours of actual hard work in a day. Even now, I'm mm-hmm. trained myself to do it. And I'll I'll show you. Obviously, you can't see this on the podcast, but I've got some old uh, posters of my old schedules where it was a log this time. And even the time when I was working, um, you'd still struggle to get three or four hours in um, a day. But then I would, at the end of the day, I'd actually achieve loads of things, and it felt like I'd done a lot. If you'd be amazed that just like what you said, one to three hours, you do that every day. You're laughing. Um, I challenge everyone out there listening. When you think about your your jobs or your your, your careers or whatever it is you're doing, how many hours a day are you actually working? like doing the thing you're paid to do and how many of them are you going for coffees just going for little breaks here and there mm. chatting to someone or in a meeting i think you know planning to work not actually working exactly. um you think you'd be amazed um yeah yeah was there a specific time of the day that you were studying was it did you work better in the morning at night yeah. or was it absolutely better in the morning um if i had a real difficult problem the morning was always the best time to do it before you know i, I don't eat breakfast i haven't for many years and one of the things that gives me is this mental clarity of not there's nothing digesting in your stomach yeah um and you just feel clear and switched on um so that period between 9 a.m and 12 a.m i guess would be my most productive usually mm. um and if i miss that period if i wasted it i might try in the afternoon to catch up a bit but i've had it so many times where at 5 or 6 p.m i've i've got tunnel vision with a certain problem and i'm there thinking oh, i can fix this whatever um and I eventually give up, might be 7 p.m. And the next day I come back in the morning fresh and it's just, oh, that was easy. But what was I, how on earth did I get stuck on this for so long? Exactly. Um, and if I just stepped away or if I just started in the morning in the first place, you know, so planning, yeah, again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's very uh, Gary Keller-esque from The One Thing and that, that book actually helped me so much in my studies because I remember in my in my second year of, of university, I was very, very, you know, sort of, uh quantity of studying over quality and and i got into my third year and and really i started studying almost always the first thing in the day you know where where as kel talks on that book where willpower is the highest and then you know and, and i was no doubt i was studying less and the third year went whilst i had that balance in my life that we talked about where where i where i was making time for for relationship for my relationship for for my friends, for, for, for sports, for, for that balance. 
and, and I flourished and it was the, the best year of academia of academia that I've ever had so so I, I completely echo what you say but of making time for for having that balance for that for that for that minute I mean I can clearly point to times where I lost sight of this which is easy to do you can learn all this stuff and you can still lose sight of it every now and then oh, sure. and so when I first started my thesis it would be quite funny in that I became addicted to this video game again. The video games. It's funny how when you have to do something really big, in this case, this is obviously the biggest thing I've ever done, um, that some of your old habits resurface and that they, they suddenly take power over you that they used to have. And I also gained a lot of weight too during this period. But it would be funny that uh, my girlfriend would, right, well, tonight we're going to watch a film or whatever, you know, socialize that we normally would since I, I lived in her house. Um, and I would, in the morning, I'd agree to it. Yeah, yeah, I'll get some work done today. And then tonight we'll, we can do this and that. Come the evening, you know, I haven't done a thing and time is progressing. I've got to get this damn thesis written. Um, and she would come in to me, are oh, you coming to watch it? Oh, I'm sorry, I've got to do some more work. And then she would go away and then she'd get angry because all she could hear from my bedroom was torpedo in the water, sir. Because I was playing this <laughs> damn World of Warships game instead of actually doing the work I was supposed to be doing. And, and every time she came in, I would suddenly switch like, oh, no, do you want to do work? I bloody wasn't. Uh, and uh, it was actually after about a month or two of doing that, I went back to rereading some of these old books, like I now have it, and another book, which is really good, it's called Getting Things Done, um, which is all about how to organize your life, really. And that, that's got some really good advice in it. Like one of the great bits of advice in that book, which I love, is what is, don't just do a to-do list, which might be, in this case, perhaps I'll finish this chapter, publish this paper. That's way too broad and hard a goal. It actually asks, it makes you write down what is the actual next action that you need to do on this task. So it might be go into R or something and make this graph or ring this client and ask this question, you know. And once you've got a specific goal like that and you know roughly how long it's going to take, it's so much easier to, to, to go ahead and do it. Um, and you'd be amazed that you could write, say, 20 of those things out and that the fun it gets each of those two minutes tasks and you start ticking them off. It gets to the point where once you've written a to-do list with that, with that in mind a few times, you go back and think of things you already did that morning and, and add them in and take them off just for, this, just for the fun of taking her task off. Yeah, and I would yeah. add to that as well that having a, that what you said, but there is, a, there is a, a psychological reason that when you have a to-do list, uh, which is opposite to a completed list, yeah. and you put a tick next to something on your completed list, it releases dopamine in your brain, which is an addictive chemical. So it makes you want to go through the list and absolutely. complete more of your tasks. Yeah, absolutely. And it also helps you as well. If you've got if you've got too many things to do, or you know, you're a bit overwhelmed, you're writing all these things down and you prioritize them and you start doing them. It, it removes that paralyzing fear sometimes of, oh, this person wants this, this person wants this, I need this to do as well. Because you know you're handling them, they're in a row, they're on the page, they're out of your brain, um, and you, you're you not worrying anymore because there's no unknowns there anymore. Because you can clearly put down an unknown. There might be something which... It's stressing out you haven't done it, but it might be because you need someone else to reply to you and there's nothing you can do about that. So you've written that down on the page as well, you know, waiting for this bit to reply. Then you can start stressing about it because it's out of your control at that point. And if you're happy, there's nothing else you can possibly do about it. You you mentioned um, briefly that you, you, know, you sort of had a little bit of an addiction to video games. And um, I was just wondering if, if that's something that you still find yourself dealing with now because... You know, we have a lot of messages, and I've spoke to a lot of people on the DMs about, you know, addictions. Obviously, I can't comment on to what extent yours may have been, but is is that something that's that's ongoing or? Have you it, ha it hasn't been ongoing this year, actually. Uh, quite something I'm quite proud of is since the year has turned, I've not played a video game. Not because I've I sort of sat down and made an effort not to, 
because I've sort of I made some changes in my life recently where I readjusted what I was focusing on, and uh, and I decided I'd rather not sit down and and play video games when there's other things like like learning a language. So for example, I've started learning Russian every day, which is a strange thing, and that's become my video game. But it's just but to, to go back to your question, this it is something that I have struggled with before January, and um, so. Uh, I recently switched from being a scientist to a different kind of job involving uh, automation. And when I, the problem why I was finding when I was a scientist was, I, I, I won't go into details why, but I wasn't really enjoying that job. So I wasn't driven every day. So when I was writing down goals, they weren't driving me anymore. They weren't making me excited. And it, when something like that happens, you know you've got to sit down and reevaluate. But because that was the case, um, then I started avoiding my work. And that's when the bad habits seep in, you know, mm-hmm. playing video games like The Binding of Isaac, which is a, a side scroller, which I've, I've, I've played hundreds of hours of it in the past, like, four or five years. Um, not as bad as World of Warcraft back in the day, of course. But still bad enough that uh, it, it bothers me that I've wasted so much time on it. And that was all because I wasn't keeping myself busy with other useful things. Um, so, yeah, I think th- this year, the, the reason that's got better is because now I've got this new job where I've got a schedule and I can get some momentum going on things like the gym. I just don't really have the, the the time to sit down and play video game, or at least I do have the time, but I just rather not. Like I've been helping my old boss publish uh, just today a, a paper of mine, which is in my thesis, has just been published. Well, not published, but submitted for publication today, um, which is crazy how long that's taken. Um, all because with I'm not doing the video games anymore. I'm just thinking about other things I'd like to do, which would give me a boost. Um, Russian is going well, which is a bit weird. I've been doing yoga every Thursday, hot mm-hmm. yoga, which is a really fun thing to do. Um, you're in a room basically and the temperature is 30 40 degrees and uh you're just doing yoga and whoa, i've never sweat so much in my life <laughs> um but yeah but uh, having this this routine is really valuable to me i didn't have a routine in my last job because um there, there was all kind of all kinds of reasons that was the case but uh now i've got a routine i find that makes everything much easier i've started losing weight again nicely because uh, i got a bit too fat towards the end of last year because it's easy to lose focus on these things mm-hmm. um and i'm feeling great i'm feeling strong and I'm really excited, actually. Uh, I've got a few months ahead of me now where I'm on this new job. I know I'm going to be every day. And I can I can just have an idea. Oh, right, this day is I'm doing this. I've got this bit of exercise I've got planned in. I'm going to have this for my food. It's just I'm just happier, I guess, yeah. I can say right now. So when you think about in terms of, say, the video addiction that you faced, and you could even sort of go later in your life and say you were sort of addicted to the results and, you know, to, to the exercise and the diet... And there's actually there's actually uh, studies into this that show people are sort of an addictive personality. They have higher percentages of dopamine in their brain, so they're more addicted to that feeling. So, in your experience, what do you think the keys to 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 beating that addiction is? Because it sounded as if, sort of from what you said there, that it was almost replacing old habits with newer, more empowering ones. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, we all want that dopamine hit, but I'm, something I've actually struggled with a lot and I've thought about a lot is, and this is a hard question, but I, I think I've, I've answered it for myself at least satisfactorily, is if we are, say, just chemicals and so forth, and everything we do is just to get a dopamine hit, then why not just go straight to the source, do things like play video games and so forth? Because, you know, at the end of the day, if that's the same chemical response that doing something meaningful gives you, then why not carry on? Um and that's something that I did struggle with in the past year, um, that, that idea. Like I said, that nihilism sort of thing, um, which other people have spoken of much more intelligent than I have, I'm sure. Um, but what I have found, and which is kind of obvious when you think about it, 
the fact that I'm asking the question about that, and when I'm doing it, I'm clearly not happy with what I'm doing, even though I should be if I'm just having pure dopamine. Is enough for you to let me know that this is this couldn't continue. And now, when I'm doing some of these new habits, be it learning the language or trying to stretch my hamstrings out because they are not relaxed enough and they make my deadlifts mess up, which always bothers me. Um, or be it something else which I've been trying to do is play guitar more. I've had a guitar for years, for example, and I've always wanted to get better at that. Um, now I can get the dopamine kick. It might not be as instantaneous as a video game or whatever, but when I'm doing it, I've got that satisfaction that what I'm doing is actually something that's worthwhile. I'm gaining a skill. I'm improving in some way. And that's something you can't say when you're in World of Warcraft grinding on monsters for more XP or in the World of Warships trying to sink, some, sink someone else's battleship with your puny cannons. Um, the dopamine hit you get off that is very satisfactory, but afterwards, when everything else is so dull and you've not achieved anything and another week's gone by, you've not you've not published that paper, you've not learned that new bit of skill for your CV, which you said you were going to do. I hate that feeling more than I hate perhaps the feeling of sitting down, right, time to learn Middle Russian or whatever. Um, yeah. And once you get over that initial barrier and, and frame it like that, it's so much easier. Yeah. And you will start getting the dopamine hits off those other challenges. They might not be a video game designed to do it, but they still give you the same boosts if you if you don't poison your brain with things like video games and other easily uh, what you call dopamine high tasks such as bad food or pornography or whatever it is mm. yeah and and i think that the 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 correlations with there which you said it sort of reminds me of that uh, the marshmallow study into instant gratification where they found the people that sought after instant gratification they scored much lower on things like relationship satisfaction career income overall life satisfaction all these things so pursuing things which uh bring meaning for for one and also that that are things which are not easily attainable so having those two uh cross categories but they they are they are exactly what you're describing and definitely things which will boost your overall self-image i mean it's amazing some of these things that are hard to learn um be it piano or whatever else you're trying to do progress is slow and it is painful but it's, it's incredible i still find it incredible now when i go and pick my guitar up and i can just play a c chord or something and just how difficult that was the first time i do it i never thought that i'd ever be able to do this you know how how do you see people like you know the lead guitarist of metallica like was it kirk hammett uh, doing what he does with that with his fingers and that thing and how on earth is that possible and you start to appreciate that if i was to do the practice i was doing just to get to the c chord every day for obviously he did it for many many years um, so I'm not going to get his level, but the point is, you are you do improve, and that improvement on a, something that really matters is ex- is so such a powerful good dopamine feeling. I don't I don't think a video game can ever that that, that sort of long lasting dopamine effect. I just don't think a video game or something else like that could ever give you that feeling. Uh, maybe it could, I suppose, if you gained the system and became a professional uh, video gamer and you actually made money off it. But um, that's obviously not the case for the vast majority of people. One thing which we always like to to ask our guests is that uh, the education system, you have essentially completed the education system. I think all, you know, if, if you are going to uh, complete your, as I just said, then you do go on to become a university lecturer, as you did. Then, <laughs> So what is your stance on uh, the education system? Well, I think it's terrible. I mean, you you, <laughs> you you could write books about this, and people have. Um, but the, the these days, kids and I only speak for the UK system here. But kids are not taught 
uh, what and how to think, but they're just told what to think. And a good example is that I've already mentioned earlier about when I first went to university and I was expected to do some of the work on my own and think for myself and, and when, to, when to do it. Um, and I didn't because all my all for my life, I've been shown, right, these are the mass problems you're doing. This is how you do them. Oh, we'll mark afterwards. Oh, if you get it wrong, it's exactly what, this is exactly what you need to get it right. And uh, I'm just learning a lot of pointless knowledge too. I mean, I was listening to an interesting thing on Radio 4 the other day um, about how in the UK, we seem to be obsessed with, for example, learning trigonometry. But we don't actually have to do that anymore these days. Computers do most of that. So in places like Germany and other, other European countries, they didn't even bother learning that anymore. It's just something that we decided we're going to learn because that's what our parents knew, so that's got to be in the curriculum. Um, but it's not even the content. It is it is the the how to think. I mean, I don't know any, any physics students out there have ever tried going back to look at the university's 1960s physics exam papers. You try that and you you will be scared because they are hard. They, they, there's no way near the same level of skill needed to get the degree that was needed back then. Um, and I, my old physics professor, um, he used to say, he thinks it's all far too easy. If you don't get 100%, you should fail. Because it wasn't like that back then. But certainly, uh, it, the way it is now, that you can get the first with 70%, um, that's kind of shocking, really. I mean, that might have been acceptable back in the 60s and 70s where the papers were really hard. Um, so to give you an example, of a good example of how we're not taught how to think, um, but rather what to think. And that's actually starting to happen in the universities as well these days because everyone wants to be able to say they've put this many first through and so forth um a good example would be the final exam of our university physics degree in our fourth year um was called general problems and even the, the mention of that name put shivers down my spine because this exam was any of the core modules of the past four years you could be asked any question on any of them and you've just got to be able to answer them basically and they wouldn't even be um specific knowledge so you wouldn't be expected to learn say the equation of the gravitational attraction between two bodies that would be written on the page for you and worry about that it'd just be all right you've got this problem and here's a bunch of information and facts get through that mixer and come up with the answer and it was really scary because you couldn't revise for it because you can't train you know you you could revise for it you could be practicing but you can't i couldn't sit down and write if i memorize this equation i've memorized that this happens when this process happens i'm going to get guaranteed three marks in this exam and um, that's not what wasn't going to happen uh, you just had to go in there, do as much sparring with the past paper questions as you could, and hope that you'd be able to pick apart what the information you needed and get through the end of it. And the thing is, back in the 60s and 70s, you look at some of these old papers, they were all like that. All of the papers were that hard. So you really did have to know um, some of the things. And I it was thinking back to some of my meetings in my PhD days with my supervisors, where they would ask me a basic physics question, like something as simple as what are Maxwell's equations? And for those out there who don't really know anything about physics, they are fundamental equations that describe how electromagnetics works. And um, there was an exam question on uh, my old supervisor's paper, uh, exams was write them out fully um, with no mistakes. And I wouldn't be, I mean, I struggle to tell you now, to be honest, because the thing is, I can either look them up on Wikipedia or I just didn't have to know them because it's not what we're taught. You know, we're just taught to memorize certain things for certain situations and not worry about anything else. Whereas had had those exam papers been like the, the, the that more modern one where you had to, figure it all out yourself i would have had to know those things they were just being built into me because i would have been forced to use them and think for myself um so he still was shocked when i couldn't do things like that um and it's the same for a lot of other students too i mean i bet you've got to ask any student of any course put an exam paper in front of them from when they did it and they really would struggle these days you, you can't retain that all that information which is just memorizing forever
I, I love that because one of my biggest gripes with it, especially in high schools, is I think back to my GCSEs and A levels, and like whether the question was, you know, who who started the Reichstag fire, or it was what muscles are used um, when you do this exercise. It's essentially the same question in in the sense that it's basically what you can remember, and it's not a part. It's not about you know um, picking apart information yourself. It's just here's the answer go home revise it and then if it comes up on the test write it out how we taught you to write it out and that really found me out in university when i was given um you know like texts to or sources in my history exams and that made me go to a department of the university and i and i took on a, a side course in critical thinking which i thought is extremely important and i thought that that sort of to be able to think like that yourself is something that should be instilled in you from a young age rather than you know read and then regurgitate that information and, and if i was to put a you know a lesson into high schools it would be critical thinking and i wanted to know if if there were any lessons that, or subjects you think should be implemented into the education system well i mean honestly if they just looked at the education system and just reverted it back 20 or 30 years that'd be a good start because the thing is the british education system used to be the the envy of the world it used to be said um, I'm quoting this from Peter Hitchens, um, who obviously knows a great deal about this sort of stuff and has written some great uh, books on the subject, um, that back in the, say, 60s and 70s, a, universe, uh, a British A-level, or equivalent back O-level, whatever it was called, was equivalent to a USA degree, and uh, British students were highly sought after for this reason. But uh, in the name of, well, I don't want to get political, but in the name of egalitarianism and making things easier for everyone, uh, this is slowly being ripped away and now you can see it happening. There's been obvious consequences to, to this education system boiling down because now when you apply for a job these days, you have to do their own exam because they can't trust the school system anymore. Um, there's a million hoops for you to jump through before you can get a job, uh, whereas they, they can't just trust a uh, thing. And it's, it's amazing that, like, I did the, this PhD in physics, and one of the reasons I did it was because that's one of the few things that's still safe from that because you, there's, there's no way to do a PhD without having to learn a lot of those skills. Although I would say that I probably had an easier time doing my PhD than I would have if I was 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. Something I, I would say is that I always thought to myself uh, when it came to the education system that if I had to go and ask a teacher or a lecturer, will this come up on the test, then I think the system has failed at that point. Absolutely. I think that there is a clear failing of, of and a clear example of what it favours memorization over learning. You know that's that's one problem that you know I think it really does have. The other problem that I, that I, I really think it has is that that it's failure to to update. And we ask all we ask most of our guests this question. You know when it comes to the education system, you know a lot of the the replies it has are, are mostly the same. And and I still love the 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 fable of Rip Van Winkle when it says that if you know Rip Van Winkle, the guy that slept for like a hundred years or something, would have said that if Rip Van Winkle woke up today, then everything would have changed. The language would have changed, technology would have changed, the 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 social dynamics would have changed, how we dated would have changed. But the one thing that would have stayed the same was the education system. You'd have walked into a classroom and it would be exactly the same as it was. <laughs> so so that's that's something which I I you know that that i i have a real gripe with um the other thing that i would say is is and as you talk there about as we edge now into this this new age of automation 
you know that that something I was thinking about as well, and I was thinking to myself, if I had a kid, what would what would the advice be that I would give him? You know, and I think that it's about finding jobs which really can't be replaced. And I'll give you an example. Let's, let's take say a radiographer job. You know, you and I could study for for twelve years to become a radiographer. The 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 career doesn't exist anymore because because they found that that a computer now reads a, a scan better than an average radiographer does so so it's about if someone does decide that they want to go there to first prioritize careers which uh are really essential for for to go to university for like i you know i don't, I don't see the point in going there to do a language or you know i'm not sure what you think about about careers which you think are essential to go to university for. um yeah that's actually something i think about a lot and it because obviously, so my new, I said I'd quit being a scientist. So my new job involves robotic process automation, where we basically go into different companies, find out what mundane jobs they're doing on their computers or whatever, and build a robot to do it for them, which people are very happy for, because there's often very mundane jobs, which they hate. Um, but because I'm doing this job now, I'm always thinking, and our technology for this job is growing soon. It won't just be simple mundane jobs that are obvious. It's going to start including understand what this person wants from on the on the chatbot say someone ringing and wants this thing understand what they've said and then do the job and that's going to start really eating away at the workforce that that kind of technology um so i've been thinking you know what jobs are there that couldn't be automated and just to give an example of and i'm really quite envious of the person who's got this job so what i was i mentioned the hot yoga go there every thursday and the teacher there you know she does it every day and she obviously loves it and it's like yeah it might not in the most fantastic ways but She's doing a job there, which she loves, and that could never be done by a machine because, you know, yoga is like a intensely personal thing. It's a very human thing, um, and it requires a real passion. And it's like, I would love to have a job like that where I'm going in every day just doing exercise and helping people out, you know. Um, I think those kind of jobs definitely don't need a degree. I mean, you don't need a degree to do yoga. <laughs> you just need experience. And there's loads of them out there. Uh, another option would, obvious one would be um I guess a, a personal trainer would be something. I guess maybe you do need to be for that. I don't know. That's a tricky one. Um, anything that involves a human touch, you know, running a coffee store or something like that, that, that can't be done by a machine. Um, so, but obviously, a lot of those jobs don't actually pay well or whatever. So, I guess the jobs that can't be done by a machine are ones which involve, also involve high amounts of responsibility and organizing people rather than doing some kind of um, job. I mean, Science is another one that could be done by a machine because that requ- that requires that creative spark, which you never can. A machine is never going to decide. Well, maybe, maybe it will. Maybe it'll be proved wrong one day. But I don't think that a machine will ever be able to decide that we should research this topic area and then think of brand new ways to do it. It's just not going to happen. Um, and people say that machines will be able to do art and things. I don't think that's going to happen either. That that requires a touch of the human. Um, but I guess I'm going off bit off point a bit here because the question was, uh, what's a uh, so what things you want to do in university, what, what you should really think about what careers you actually want. Um, and I guess I would say to people out there who are going into university, if you're going to go into university um, and, if you, and you don't have a career in mind, well, I would first of all recommend that you at least do a degree where there's a clear new avenue open for you, be it engineering or one of the STEM subjects. But secondly, even if you don't do that, then go into it and, and use it instead as an opportunity to grow your social circle and expose yourself to all that stuff because that's one of the things that really helps me with it. Um, you know, if it's not going to be that valuable to you educationally, you can at least make it valuable to you 
socially, uh, which I certainly did when I was in university. And that was probably the biggest game for it when I took back to it, actually. Just how much I learned from interacting with those people and so on. Invaluable. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the methods or, or ways of teaching um, need to evolve in some way? Because I think, especially with high school, I think the education system has a very specific person that they uh, benefit in terms of you know a type of the type of person to complete it to a high standard is often the same type of person and for some people those metrics um, you know it's like trying to teach a fish to climb a tree but that, it doesn't mean that they are any let they can give any less value um, but it just doesn't bring the best out of them do you think that there are any ways where we can evolve the way that we're taught in schools yeah there's loads I mean just just to say one thing uh, I always find it funny when people try and use an argument about, oh, more educated people think this. I was like, what do you mean by education? Because certainly these days, education doesn't mean you're smart. It just means more spoon-fed people who have been in that system for longer think this. So, oh, really? Well, that's not a surprise because they've not, they've not been exposed to much much else because of the way our schools work. Uh, anyway, so I think that one, of the, one of the things that's going to really disrupt our education system, because uh, right now, I mean, there's obviously so much there you can go into, but the schools have measured... Uh, but on very specific standards, and if they don't meet those standards, then you know they lose their funding or whatever, and so everything becomes about the teachers meeting those very specific small standards. And what's going to happen, and it's already starting to happen, is that there's going to be ways for people to learn which don't involve going to school. So online courses and so on, um, they're a big thing. And, and uh, there's plenty of other people who talk about things like this. So obviously one of the big ones talking about this right now is Jordan Peterson, where he's talking about how the big problem here is accreditation. Um, right now, the only real reason that universities still are in their position that they're in, where people seem to revere them for some reason, when often they just teach a lot of rubbish, um, is that they're the only ones that can award you that piece of paper which says, I've got a degree, and that's the only thing that employers currently care about. Do you have this piece of paper? Uh, so when online websites and things figure out how to award accreditation that is just as uh, bulletproof, I mean, the main, the main reason they can't do it right now is in university, they are watched like hawks to make sure that their exam rooms are completely secure and that you are the one doing the exam. That's the only real thing that's stopping uh, online websites from growing is that you can't at the moment have that same guarantee that you actually did do that course and it wasn't just someone you paid to do for you or whatever. Now, hopefully something like blockchain technology will come in and help solve this problem. Um, but I don't think it's impossible for that to be solved. And once it is, we're going to start seeing major upheaval. People will no longer be, especially the levels of debt you get into these days, people will no longer be going into these institutions for three or four years and just basically partying, let's be honest, for a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and instead, they'll actually go on these websites and there'll be something they want to learn, which is a big thing. They're not just being dictated what they should be learning. You know, Once you pick a subject, say in physics, for example, you've got to learn all these things, which okay, you can appreciate that there's this, this good having a structure, but perhaps perhaps I would have also benefited from learning, perhaps doing something a bit on the side about computers or something like that, and I can do that too. And when you go online and choose a course and you, you actually want to learn, it's amazing the, the attitude difference. Um, like I've currently been doing a machine learning course because um, I want to get delve into that area of information technology and, and uh, smart automation, etc. And my attitude when I'm sitting down listening to those online lectures is so different to what it was when I was in university. At university, I had uh, one module I didn't even go to a single lecture for. I just turned up for the exam and got like 70%, which just goes to show how useless you actually get. You're not actually getting taught anything. You're just being regurgitated to. Um, 
Whereas this online thing, I actually want to know how this thing works and I'm paying attention. I'm doing all the side work. And it's like, I just wish that uh, university was still like this and you actually encourage you to do this way. So perhaps going forward, there's going to be a shift. Maybe you'll be able to go to university uh, and there'll just be somewhere where they can watch you do these things that you choose to do in your own time. And, and they get maybe that's a way of getting the accreditation. I don't know. Um, there's definitely going to be big changes, though, I'll tell you that. Um, and I wonder whether if you were to stop funding these universities right now and they had to exist purely on people giving them money um, and getting their money's worth, I think you'd see some substantial changes because they couldn't just rely on getting free money every every year. They would have to actually start adding value to people. And I think you'd soon see some massive changes. And I definitely do think that that, that is the way that we are heading. And and something something I, I said uh, that you said I found I found really interesting there. Uh, about the studying you know what you're interested in also what you're good at because remember we all have different learning styles you know the education system seems to just want to ignore that they want to they seem to want to ignore that some people are audio learners some people are visual learners if, if you get a uh in as i say in typical uh a schooling system you get a, a scorecard of five grades you get three a's a b and a c they're, they're gonna say to you oh we gotta get that c up rather than looking at the A's, you know, so, so, uh, but, but in real life, like, that's not, that's, that's, that's not how it works, and you listen to, to, you know, any, any credible source, you know, any, any, you listen to the Cal Newport, who, you know, the, the author of Deep Work, you know, about doing what you love is about how the, the finding that work, which gives you meaning, is, is, you know, the real source of, of, of happiness in our lives, you know, so, so that, that sort of, minimizing your weaknesses and and you know is 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 really counterintuitive and another example i give you this is is that there's a friend i have that uh is a really talented pianist really really talented you know and and he was uh and he was about 15 or so at the time and his parents uh you know he come around to that sort of choice of of you know going to going to university or not and and he said no he said you know i want to carry on and you know and turn this into something and they're like no we want you to go to university to study accounting you know and i was just thinking to myself i was like fucking hell you know the the world doesn't need another another average joe accountant it needs another beethoven Accountant <laughs> that's going to be shortly replaced by a bot who's figured everything out before him yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah actually i've got a similar story which i'll share which is uh, i have a friend of mine who was exceptionally good at playing the trumpet and um he was doing a course in engineering but it became obvious as he was doing it that, you know, this is not where my future lies. And yet he was getting paid at you know, the age of 18, 19 to go and do concerts for this trumpet. And uh, what eventually ended up happening is that he failed that degree. It didn't matter because he then managed to transfer into the Royal College of Music in London, where he did something he was actually interested in. And now he tours the country playing. I, well, I watched him in Exeter Cathedral. I watched him uh, do a solo trumpet in front of thousands of people. And it was it was absolutely amazing. First of all, it was amazing because someone who was so fun and and didn't seem that academic was clearly absolutely brilliant at something. Mm. And it was weird seeing him in this different light, where you know, it was everyone was was obsessed with watching him because he was so in the zone and it was so good. Um, that was the first thing. Um, and secondly, that it was just so pleasant to know that someone out there is, is doing this it's got this talent uh, and they actually can make money from it and they're doing it and they're happy, uh, which he clearly wasn't happy with doing the other thing. Um, so I, I always think that's quite inspirational and it make, makes you wonder, like for me, I did physics as my degree. And honestly, if I look back at why did I do that? 
uh, well, it was because at the time I wanted to be an RAF pilot and I met an RAF pilot and he did physics or all do physics then. Um, you know, you, you sort of give it a stupid, and you really, how stupid it is when you think about it. You get one shot at university, which is free in the sense that you get that student loan and so forth. After that, you're done. So I often think I would have much actually preferred to do computer science because even though I do, I am interested in physics, obviously, I wouldn't have done a PhD in it otherwise. Um, I'm more interested in computer science and computers. And I think there will be, at this point now, I've already spent too long being educated. And I've got, there's no real option for me to go back and do computer science instead without paying a fortune. Or I had, at the, you know, I, I had no way of knowing that at the time, being, being as it went properly educated in school, um, that that was going to be something that I really enjoyed. So, you know, you sort of rush into all these things. Um, perhaps one thing that might be useful then, I wonder, I'm just sort of thinking out loud now. Um, for people would be if you had to do like a mandatory gap year or something to give you some a chance to think about what you actually want to do before you go into university or maybe you should be able a, a different option perhaps would be you get to have one year of doing a course and you can switch after that first year to any other degree and there's no penalties no no you know it's just made easy so that you can have a, a taste or perhaps you could do two or two simultaneous and have a taste for both you know i guess there's other things perhaps there are some things like that already happened i'm unaware of i don't know do you, do you feel that there's there should be a responsibility um amongst you know pe- people in positions of such as teachers to not sort of stifle those creativity and and those dreams for example um when i was leading up to making the choice for university when i was between gcse and finishing my a levels i had options um to explore a scholarship um in in an american university um to take me on as a swimmer as I used to swim for Wales and um but I was as long as I took a sport related subject um now I was talking up my options and most people here were thinking no follow because I was good at history in, in school and that's the sort of path I was pushed down and I remember speaking to my teachers and, and they were sort of pushing me down that path as well because they said you know you really say you don't you know being a professional swimmer doesn't turn out you don't really have anything to fall back on other than a sports-related degree or something. And I felt like I was sort of pushed by the education system to and to take a history degree, which, to be honest, is worthless to me because I have no intention of doing anything with it. Um, and I feel like I wasted three years. So do you feel that is that, you know, responsibility to not stifle kids in, in that sort of way? It would be nice if that was the case, but, of course, that's not the case because... Right now, the only thing that the teachers care, I mean, I'm not saying there are teachers that don't think like this, but in general, their incentive is to make sure that the school's markings are higher. And the school's markings are higher if the X amount of people go to X amount of universities and do X amount of these degrees, which people have decided are the ones we want, which, of course, you could never actually know. Mm. Um, the whole teacher thing is it's a real shame. Teaching um, used to be a really well-respected profession, and there are still some fantastic teachers out there, don't get me wrong. And I'm really happy that there are. And some kids are very lucky to have them. I had a very good physics teacher, for example. One of the reasons I did physics was that, um, as well as the RAF story. Um, actually, funny enough, he also was in the RAF. So that's also adding up to that. Anyway, um, but I'm finding, I, I know hardly anyone now who's a teacher of my friends who could be good teachers. Because, you know, it's, it's a profession that's been battered and bruised over the years. Um, and it just doesn't carry the same respect it used to carry. And that's a real shame because like, for example, I, I myself reckon I could be a good teacher and I, I'm sure I would enjoy it. But at the end of the day, um, it's not paid very well, particularly. Um, the, 
if if you are in a position where you're starting to raise the ranks of teachers, you get lumped on all the problems you hear about with head teachers being blamed by parents for this grade not being right and that problem, and people just don't have the same. Well, I guess it's just respect. It's, people have lost respect for the education system, which means that nobody wants to become a teacher because it's not a respectful job anymore, which means the kids get worse teachers because you know, all the people who would have been the best teachers are no longer applying. I mean, when I was applying for jobs in January, I had one phone call for a teaching job and like they were sounded a bit desperate on the phone. They really just needed someone, someone who was qualified with any kind of anything remotely related to physics, for example. Um, like I know of a physics teacher who, because there's such a shortage, like they're also teaching chemistry on the side because there's just nobody else there to do it. And well, if you can if you can teach physics, you can probably teach chemistry, you know. And it's real, it's real sad that that it's gone that way. Um, because I can imagine, like, thirty years time, if I wanted to retire from, say, some private company job, me, you know, made made some money, whatever, I would quite happily go and become a teacher and just teach kids and, you know, this is how physics works, and oh, I've got this new experiment to show you. But from what I'm hearing about people who do do that job. They're bogged down so much by nonsense, like they have to do a set amount of marking a week, they have to set a certain amount of homework, um, a certain amount of tests, and there's just no freedom in it anymore. It was just such a shame. Like, how good would it be if you had a teacher who you come into a physics lesson, say, or whatever your passion is, maybe it was swimming or a swimming lesson or something, um, and they were really excited to show you something and guide you all around and look at this cool thing that happened and do this. And the kids would, would absolutely love it because I've been in situations before where I have spoken to kids about science and, and the enthusiasm is really, really nice to see. And it's so easy to get it out of them. If you just put a bit of enthusiasm in, you, in yourself and I can see that being a really fun job, if only it was still respectable and so forth, which, you know, which uh, most people don't seem to think it is these days. So that's, that's a real shame. I mean, there's nothing quite like uh, the, the energy you see in a kid's eyes when, um, they are locked on to what you're saying and they're really interested and they want to know like, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do this? It's like, this is the spark you're trying to get out of people, which we're hammering out of them instead. Oh, mum, I've got to come on. I've got these questions I've got to do by tomorrow. If I don't, I'll get detention. So, so, so let's look at this from a, from a, a sort of summarizing point of view of, of this topic. If you were to, to advise your own child, if he comes to you and says, Gareth, uh, you know, he's, he's 15, 16, and he says, should I go to university? What would your advice be to him? Or her, of course, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the first thing I'd say to them is... Uh... <laughs> that was an easy way out. Um, is why? Why do you want to go to university? That would be my first question. Because um, if you can answer that, you usually answer it yourself. If you sit down and write down just piece of paper out. I'd say get a piece of paper out, you know, blank piece of paper and a pen, which has got a lot of ink in it. Write down the question at the top. Why should I go to university? And then just, just start writing. Don't think about, don't judge what you're writing. Don't care spell spelling mistakes. Just start writing bullet points, whatever. Just don't think about it. Just start writing and put time on it, five minutes. And I think they would answer their own question in that. Um, you know, there obviously are still legitimate reasons to go to university. Like for me, I'm glad I did because I learned how to do loads of physics problems and that's that problem solving ability has proven invaluable to me ever since. Um, however, the other option for me was to do history and I, I wonder whether I would have had the same benefits out of that. I don't know. I'll never know. And obviously I can't speak for everyone. But there are people out there who did do history degrees and have got major benefits out of it because that was their passion. I had a friend who did a history degree and he absolutely loved it. Uh, he was from Greece originally and uh, he traveled to he moved to England as a boy to Kent. And uh 
he ended up writing like his dissertation on what was the effect of the Nazi Nazification in Greece, which is a really niche topic, but he got really into it and he really enjoyed it. And that's the kind of thing that you don't want to crush. So yeah, I would say to them, why do you want to go? And if it, if the if the answer to that question is because if it's something vague like oh I just want to earn some money or I want to get a job, you know, then that's just not good enough. That's me. That, that and I think that become clear to them too. I would hope so. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and and some something that that you know I I think we've echoed on this show since since the very start is is we've always said and and certainly what the guests you know that some of the you know the most brilliant people in the world have, have told us is is think about the practicality of it. You know, a, an example is let's say that you want to go and do a a Spanish degree. You know, let's let's look at the cost of say say it's a uh, circa twelve thousand pounds a year over three years plus whatever other debt you may incur, you you may finish that entire degree and not speak as good Spanish as you would by living in Spain for one year. And you would probably save yourself around 25, 30,000 pounds. I mean, that's funny you say that because I've, I've got a friend who did French and Spanish degrees and uh, they get to choose in their third year whether they go France or Spain. He chose to go to Spain. So now he speaks fluent Spanish, but his French is still pretty naff. He would say so himself compared to how it should be. And yeah, he had a French and a Spanish degree. So, well, there you go. And um, it's funny that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean to say there isn't merit in doing those kind of degrees because there certainly would be uh, if you look at it from culture and other other things, or at least how degrees used to be. But I can't say I know too much about that. Let's talk about uh, some of the uh, self experiments that you have uh, done on yourself because I know you're a keen self experimentalist, much like Lewis and myself. Uh, sure. And. Um, or all kinds. I, I I often laugh at some of the things I try tried over the years. Um. So one of the big I'll talk about some experiments that have worked first of all. So one of the experiments I I started doing in my second year of uni after I'd gained some weight again after losing all that weight I talked about earlier was uh it was becoming clear to me that uh I was struggling to get to stay on track in, when I was in uni in terms of calories and so forth and I'd still started to back in started gain weight and uh. I hear this whole thing about intermittent fasting, which at the time, this was 2010, that really wasn't a thing that people did. Um, it's obviously grown in popularity since because it's so effective. Um, and I won't go into the science of why it's effective because a lot of it's disputed. But for me, there are some undeniable benefits of not eating breakfast. Such a simple thing to do. First of all, when you wake up, that's so much more time in your morning, which you're not worrying about cooking food or whatever. Um, so immediately you're on the, you're on the front foot because You've got that. You can use that time instead to plan your day and think about things and so forth. Secondly, um, and I think this is the main advantage of, of not eating breakfast and, and, that, and that intermittent fasting. It means that I get to eat two meals because I, I like to eat big meals because I used to be so fat. And both of those meals can be, say, a thousand calories each, or one can be one thousand six hundred, and one can be three or four, depending on what my current goal is. And that means at the end of that meal in the evening, which might be one thousand seven hundred calories, one thousand six hundred calories, I get that feeling of fullness which I usually only used to get when I binge eat. And uh, that means that I go, I can be satisfied after that, that I've had a big meal. And what's amazing about this is you'd think, well, okay, but then what about the morning where you're really hungry because and, and, you haven't eaten then? It doesn't happen. After after two weeks or so of not eating breakfast, uh, you stop getting that feeling of hungry, hungry in the morning. It just doesn't happen anymore. And uh, in fact, now if I do eat breakfast, it makes me feel a bit sick. Um, like, so obviously I'm not perfect. No one is. So on the weekend, we had the Wales Grand Slam match. Um, Wales rugby for those who don't know um and that's a big cultural event here so I knew I was going to be out all day 
uh, drinking, singing songs and so forth. So I ate breakfast at half past nine. Ah, that really didn't feel good. Like, it's just, your body just doesn't like it if you don't do it often. Uh, you, you, you only, you get hungry at the times they're used to eating. And that, these days, I only ever eat at 12 o'clock and then when I come from work, so like say six. So those are the times I get hungry. Simple as that, really. And it was, you know, there's all arguments about whether you actually get any benefits metabolically. It's relevant because the, the thing that makes it work for me is it's so much easier when you've got one less meal to think about to stick to your diet. You know, I'll just double up my chicken. That's, I don't have to think about a whole new meal every day or whatever. So that's one experiment that was successful. And I think that's one of the biggest changes in my life the last couple of years, which has been really useful. Because after, after I implemented that, uh, I first lost a lot of weight again. You know, so obviously I've been through a lot of periods of getting leaner, stronger, leaner, stronger, you know, the usual cut and bulk thing. Um, but secondly, um, I, ne- I if, even if I wasn't eating well, um, it never really got that bad because I don't do so much damage in one meal because you do get full much, you know, if you cut after about 3,000 calories. My personal limit is 8,000 calories. I've tested that out, uh, which is a bit ridiculous. But that's that's effort. You, you can't get to those levels unless you're really making an effort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 8,000 calories in one meal. Oh, what a day. Um, but yeah, so that's experiment number one that's been successful. Uh, another experiment which I've had mixed success with, and I really can't decide on what what uh, the best way is for this one, is getting up early every day. We're talking half five, six o'clock. I've been through periods in the past where every day, you know, I'm sick of waking up at say ten, especially when you're doing a PhD and you're in, or a student and you're in control of your own hours. You don't, unless you've got like somewhere to be, like a meeting or something. But you'd be amazed if you've got a meeting at seven a.m. You're going to be there. And all that stuff about tiredness seems to vanish when you when your alarm goes up at half six, which is half an hour later than you you meant to, and that sudden panic comes over you. You're not thinking about how tired you are. You're just thinking, get there. And it's amazing how uh, how that that doesn't even enter your head when the when the panic sets in. And actually, that could be like that every day if you just get up early, say six o'clock in the morning or whatever, and you have a certain routine which you're excited to do, be it meditation, be it the morning yoga, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so yes. So why is this experiment? Am I confused about it? Why do I not think that? Is it good or is it bad? Good points are. You get up early in the morning. That gives you a definite routine. So every morning you know that you're going to have this certain amount of time to say. Well, for me at the moment, it's learn my Russian. That's what I do with the first time when I wake up these days. Or is it plan your calories for the day? Plan your meals out? Is it do your goals? Whatever. So you get that structure. Uh, number two. You are more productive in the morning, I find, uh, because there's something nice about, especially in the summer, when you wake up and the, the sun's rising and the birds are singing and everyone else uh, is just not around. You're silent. You can get your emails done. You're not being bombarded by new news that's happening. People texting you because they're not up yet. Um, that, that morning coffee at half six when you've sat down after doing your daily tasks, I've done some of my best work in that period. Um, so that's another positive thing. Um, those two alone are almost enough. But and number three, I guess, is because of this structure and because you're knowing you're going to do this every single day, no matter what, it's very easy then to build momentum on other habits because you get them all done in that bit of the morning. And then when it comes to the evening, you're relaxed. Now, negatives. And this is where I, I can't decide which of these are uh, better. Negatives are if you get up that early, you are inevitably going to get tired early, um, which means that if you want to go out and socialize, I don't necessarily mean drink. I just mean go out and socialize, be it to yoga, which might be late or something. That if that finishes at 10 p.m. and you want to get up at half five, six, then you're going to go home and you're going to be knackered and you're going to only have six, seven hours sleep. And we know that over long periods of time, that's just not good for you. 
Um, so basically, getting up early does mean to me that you're going to have to go to bed early too. And uh, that means while you gain that time in the morning, you lose it in the evening. And now, on the surface of it, I'm going to say that that's probably more positive than negative because when we think about it, what I'm actually doing at 11 p.m., it's usually browsing Reddit or at that time of day, we, we spoke about not having any willpower left. And that's where you're not really achieving anything. But at the same time, you do need downtime. Um, so that is important. Um, so that's one thing. And of course, if you're if you're doing that consistently and you're finding it hard to go to bed early because things are distracting you and so forth, maybe that highlights other problems. But just be realistic. If you can't sort that out, that means you're going to consistently go to bed with six, seven hours sleep in you. And that can't that can't last. That's going to affect your um, training. You know, I, I hate going to the gym up when I'm tired because I just know I'm going to be, you know, much worse than normal. It's going to affect your thinking after the first few hours. You, you will crash in the afternoon. Now, there are some ways around that. I've tried napping and that's been successful, but can't really do that in my new job. I could do that in my old job as a, as a, as a postdoc because, you know, you're in control of your schedule. I had my own little part of my lab, which was acoustically padded to do experiments, to go up there and, and, and relax for half an hour. Is that um, how long you go for 30 minutes? Yeah, so, like, so that includes 10 minutes of asking about getting relaxed and 20 minutes of actually like napping. Um, Obviously, any longer than that, and you're, you're looking at trouble because you know, you're going to do so much deeper sleep. I've done that before, and that's been a disaster where I've gone up at 2 p.m., right? Time for a nap, come back out at half past four. I'm like, oh no, this is, yeah. this is that was a mistake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that does take some discipline. So, yeah, that's 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 an ongoing experiment. Uh, I'll report back on that one maybe in a, in a few months' time to myself, like, because obviously, with this new job, I could fit that in better, and I am starting to wake up earlier. Um, but then it's, it does get ruined. I hate that when the, on the weekends when you you've had a really good week and by by Friday, what what'll happen is you'll adjust um to getting up early if you do it every day and you'll wake up automatically and you'll go to sleep much more easily. So you'll go to bed, shoot the light off, you're gone. Where, where where I've gone on really long streaks of getting up at half five, the longest I longest shit I've done is about two months. It was amazing how I'd go to bed and then be gone. Um but the thing is, if you disrupt it for one weekend, so in that same period I didn't drink, I didn't go out or anything, so it was easy to keep to keep it up. If I disrupt that for one weekend, stay out late, say, or whatever it is, socializing, then it's so hard to get back into it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you, you say this because I was reading a book by uh, Peter Atia. He's uh, one, of the, one of the world's most renowned MDs. And he was talking about how people would often come to him and, and ask him for, for blood tests and insulin tests. And, and they'd want to know everything, you know, almost every possible measurement of the uh to try to, to find out how healthy they are essentially and he and he'd say that that he'd always ask them the one thing he'd say you know if you're a man he'd say are you waking up with an erection in the morning he's saying because if you're not he's saying then this could be your circadian rhythm could be out, out of control your cortisol could be could be out of place uh he could be saying your testosterone could be too low uh he said that just there are one metric he said, just by answering that one question, he said it sort of uh, rules out a million other possible avenues. So, so what other uh, negative habits have you avoided? Major ones, which which I've avoided in the the pitfall of my life are, are uh, I've avoided alcohol and pornography. You know, so so if if I start with alcohol, I'm I'm currently doing a a sixty day alcohol fast. Um, you know, and although I'm I'm actually sick right now, I feel, I feel, I feel, you know, I feel, I feel, I feel amazing, and and obviously the the pornography one, I I know for a fact.
strong. Yeah, strong yeah, yeah. So yeah, th- those two are definitely big things for me. Um, so many years ago, uh, I realised I had a problem with alcohol. I mean, that was something that took over me in my university years because we're talking about you know, about socialising and things. That all gets much easier when you're slightly inebriated and you, you lose some of that social anxiety and you get yourself in that moment more. It is a co- I believe that's an illusion and there's something you can train. You don't need alcohol to do that. Yet I still struggle with it. But when I think back to some of my healthiest periods of my life, um, the best I think the best six months of my life health-wise was 2013 when I just finished my degree, just done my PhD. And I had come to an epiphany that I was an alcoholic because what happened was I'd be coming, coming home from uni every day, uh, my final year, um, and I'd go to this place called the Beer Box, which is a fun little shop in Exeter, which just sold out-of-date beer and wine for cheap. Um, and it, it was nasty. It, it would make you feel awful. Uh, we're talking four bottles of wine for £11. Uh, you've not good. Um, and what, 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 what I would do then would say to myself, okay, I bought these four bottles. I'll just have one tonight. Um, and that would be socializing with my friends. But gradually that turned into, uh, I'll, have, I'll have one tonight, but you know, I'll just stay in my room and do whatever else I was doing, be it um, browsing Reddit or whatever. And then what started happening really regularly, um, aside from the usual antics you get up to as a student going out and drinking, was that I would be staying in, in my house and choosing not to go out, just staying in my bedroom and, and drinking up to two and a half bottles of wine and, uh, uh, maybe every other night. Um, just sitting up to the early hours watching YouTube videos and then waking up feeling like absolute shit. Um, and this really became uh, quite bad towards the end of my third year. No, sorry, fourth year. And I remember saying to myself, right, and this wasn't the first time I'd done this. I'm going to have a month off alcohol because it's stopping me from uh, achieving my other goals. It's making me get fat because I'd, I would obviously overeat the next day when I was hungover. Um, and obviously alcohol itself has a terrible effect on that, on fat loss and all the rest of it. Um, and I said to myself, right, for this month of uh, last exams, these, these are most important because these exams are worth more than any other exams that for the entire degree, they're going to define how, these last four years on a piece of paper. So I'm not going to drink for 30 days. Um, and it only took a week. And I, I, I was amazed I even lasted a week where uh, by the time I got to Saturday, I went so far as to walk two miles to the nearest shop, which is a garage where I live in, uh, where I used to live with my parents in Rouen and Nantgaru. There's no shops around. So this, this place was a good hour, hour round trip walking just to buy dusty little bottle of wine they had on the shelf there, brought it back home, drank it. And, you know, I said, ah, there we go. That's, that's what I needed. That's all I thought. But the entire time I was doing that, it started to dawn on me, just like with the fat loss. Like, this is this is this is becoming something. It's not just, oh, I'm just drinking for fun or whatever. This is actually becoming a problem. Um, so I, what I did, I did the same thing I did uh, back when I was losing weight or whatever, uh, in that I went out to find some information on it. And this time I went on Amazon. So last time I went to the, the magazines and bought a fitness magazine. This time I went on Amazon and found this book by Alan Carr called The Easy Way to Control Alcohol which is a really interesting title um, because in my mind I had it. I don't want to stop drinking because, you know, who wants to stop drinking? Anyways, so control drinking, that sounds right. I want to be able to have control over it. Uh, and I started reading this book and I could not put it down. It was revolutionary. Um, it talks about all the different things that we see, the way we see alcohol and how ingrained it is in our culture, how we think we need to relax, which is just not true because it just it makes you numb. You can't be relaxed if you're numb. Um, it gives you apparently gives you courage. It doesn't give you courage. Uh, it just 
it makes you take stupid risks, which you wouldn't take when you're sober because they're, they're stupid risks. Um, it it supposedly tastes nice, but we all know it doesn't. And you think about that first taste of beer when you were young, and uh, you know it was horrible. How can anyone drink this? And uh, which is actually a bit of a this is a bit that's part of the that's part of the trick of alcohol because it tastes so bad when you first have it. You think, oh well, I can never get addicted to this. It's horrible, you know. I'm happy after one or two. And yet there I was drinking extremely cheap wine every night, which just tasted disgusting purely because I wanted to get drunk. That was that was obviously what was happening there. That was going for the effect. So this book then laid it all out, um, and I was like, right, I've got to do something about this. Oh, and also another another thing that made me realise that I was an alcoholic. Sorry, I missed this part. This is quite an important part of the story. Was the week after I'd got, I'd walk these two miles to that uh, petrol station to get the, get the wine. I went out uh, on a date in Swansea and um, again, didn't want to drink. So we went out on the street to Wine Street and uh, I went to the Weatherspoons um, and I just, I was fidgeting. I couldn't sit still and I was really just not good company on my date. I was, I was a bit rubbish really. I, I couldn't think straight. I was looking around me, everyone was drinking and uh, it was driving me mad. So I, I caved. I said, you know what? I'm just going to get a bottle of wine. And it was amazing. Like, my body language changed immediately when I made that decision. I stood up. I strolled over to the bar, ordered the wine. And uh, when I sat down and I'd clearly seen that, you know, I'm suddenly much happier. I'm already talking like I'm drunk. And suddenly we're already having fun. And it's like it's like I've already had four drinks. I hadn't even touched open the wine yet. And that's where it became clear to me that I had a problem. So it was after that that I, I sought out the help. Um, so anyway, read this book, um, and that was it was amazing. It's the way it puts it, uh, it's a whole story, and it, it it draws you in, and it gets you at the end of the book to to commit to stop drinking completely because you realise there's there's no benefit to whatever. Um, and for five months afterwards, which is the longest I've ever done, I didn't I didn't drink at all, um, and I've it was amazing. That's where I started learning. I'm just getting up early. Losing even, I got really, really lean. That's when I was the leanest I've ever been. Um, you know, the six pack and all the rest of it. Um, really doing well. At the start of my PhD, reading papers every day, getting loads of stuff done. Um, and then after that, uh, there was all kinds of other things that happened, which led me to down a dark path again. So the alcohol came back in, but it's different now. I see it differently. I I, I no longer drink the same way I used to, and that I I wouldn't go now to a uh, a nightclub and buy another drink at 3am after already being drunk because I mean, what's the point of it, you know? But nowadays when I do it, it's more because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. And there's not, there's not a good reason to do it. So I'm aware, I'm aware that there's something I need to work on. Um, and it's actually something I tend to work on soon again. Um, but it is easier these days you'll find uh, to sort of be part of the crowd drinking because everyone else is doing it and perhaps you don't want to be left out and people do treat you differently if you do stop drinking i find hmm. yeah and i was wondering how because I, I can relate in a way um I, i've actually never drunk alcohol in my entire life so i can't relate to the alcohol but did was there any factors like speaking to people or did anything anyone say ever ever help you realize that it was you know rather than just something you enjoyed to actually uh, maybe an eventually an uncontrollable problem yeah absolutely because as well as the whole realizing my my demeanor changed um there was i sort of realized as well that all my stories i had with all my friends in uni that that the best stories about gareth are gareth did this one's gareth did that one's all revolved around me being very drunk um, which is quite shameful really 
Um, and that was that was still an embarrassment to this day when people bring up these things. And one of the reasons I've still struggled to to completely stop because I, I managed five months and I've managed loads of periods of abstinence for a while since then, uh, but never really fully gone back to that that really good clean period is because when I meet up with my old friends and so forth, that's the person they expect me to be, and mm. and it is often just easier to sink into it and, and be that person again. And I will have fun, um, but. I need to come up with a plan for how I'm going to tackle that. And I think it is definitely possible. I mean, you, you see yourself don't drink and you seem very happy to me. So, you know, obviously it's possible for me to do it. Um, and again, this is another thing I was saying earlier about not being conscious. There's so many things happening in your life at any one time. It's impossible to be conscious of everything. But this is one of them, which is something that I want to work on now. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, the, the two examples, alcohol and pornography. And people can can, they can try to put as many positive slants as they are but there are studies into it there there are no recognizable benefits into either of them people people can say that that are you know there there are some benefits of wine there are some benefits of wine in comparison to other alcohols but but on the whole alcohols are depressing uh, pornography is is an excess stimulant you know you and i have have talked about it personally the 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 quote-unquote no fat movement the benefits of it so something we've never talked about before on the podcast but but you know the 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 your brain on porn type thing what was what was your experience with the 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 no fat movement yeah so pornography that's a really big one for me um, i actually think it's bigger than the alcohol and in fact a minute ago i mentioned how i sort of went back on the went back off the wagon with the alcohol and this this is one of the things that led to that so um pornography for me and pornography go back a long way i, I remember when we first had broadband installed aol silver um and it was amazing because back in the day when i was a teenager um so i really appreciate the kids these are much harder than i do i did um when i was a teenager the best you could do was kazaa uh and photos really dial up if you, you want to if you want a video on dial up you have to wait a week and and uh <laughs> and then uh, and, and that that meant as well your, your parents couldn't use the phone so i couldn't very well to say to them oh i'm downloading a video oh, what video are you downloading uh you don't need to know you know it just wasn't happening so the best you could do was pictures um and they would be few and far between um but i remember the day that broadband came along and suddenly you know i mean there was slow broadband compared to these days 30 kilobytes a second but 30 kilobytes a second yeah you know, that was like wow yeah and and, and i could go on it all night long because the parents didn't have to be on the like, worry about the phone so that suddenly means that uh video has become a thing and sure enough i i remember the days when i first discovered all this and masturbation became a real issue I, it also tied into world of warcraft and all the rest of it too and gaming because i remember for example at the height of my worst period i would say when i was you know 17 and a half 18 stone and what i would use my, my day used to look like this i'd wake up at around half 11 12 in the afternoon first thing i did was go on world of warcraft i'd be on there easily 16 hours a day i'd be up there till uh, irregularly four o'clock in the morning not just me some of my friends too it was a, it was a social scene that's one of the reasons it's so addictive is because you're with friends on it or so it would seem you're not actually with them yeah uh, but anyway um but during that day um there would be like periods of five minutes for example there used to be if anyone who played who's ever played this game there's a there was a something like a is it five minute wait between ships where you go from one island to another and in that five minutes that was when oh right porn time can i crack one out in five minutes and you certainly could be broadband and uh <laughs> it's funny because the, the first uh, this would go on and like the first one of the day 
be right parents have gone shopping or whatever i got this this can be a nice long one you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you go out uh, you, you find whatever and it'd be something reasonably normal um but as the day went on and you would be doing this out of pure board it'd be food pornography and video games just constant dopamine from one source or another mm-hmm. um uh and as you went on for the day obviously you can't keep doing that because your body can only take so much and you start to go up to more and more extreme stuff um I, I will obviously mention some of that stuff on here, but it's, it's quite sickening, some of the, the places you go to when you start down that path. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's three o'clock in the morning, you've already spent all day in a fantasy world. You know, yeah. your, your brain's already in a very strange place. Yeah, um, Yeah. so, you know, the things I was ashamed of probably take the, gra- take the grave with me. Um, but anyway, so that's an example of how bad it was when I was a teenager. Thing is, I escaped from all that, all the gaming, so, well, and, and, and the other things like not exercising and so forth. But the pornography thing never really left, um, and it's still a challenge to me now. Although I've got much more control than I used to, so it really came to a head for me. I mean, I could you can clearly see that someone being obese, whatever, is a problem. Um, it's less obvious that something like this is a problem because you just think, well, my body's designed for this, and I'm I'm you know attracted to whatever it is I'm looking at, so why not? Um, but it really became clear to me when uh, I was in my second year of uni, and it was my first proper relationship. Um, and well, I just could not get an erection. It wasn't happening. Um, and this wasn't the first time either, but there's, there's been other periods where I'd met girls and, you know, you know what you do, you, you go back to the years or whatever, it's the university fund. And it was, it was embarrassing that I just could not get an erection. It was, it really started to stress me out. And I started looking around, was, was it this Jack 3D supplement I was taking, which is a, a, a famous gym supplement that got banned because it's got that, the uh, amphetamine in it. Oh, what a good supplement that was. Anyway, but you know, but that, that has been linked to erectile dysfunctions. I blame that. It wasn't that. I stopped taking it. it. Made no difference. Um, you know, was it just that I just well, didn't find my girlfriend attractive? That wasn't true either. Um, you know, it, it'd be ridiculous that they would uh, even have like outfits and things just to try and get me going. It just wasn't happening. And because I was so starting to get so worried about all this, it would it would be a negative feedback loop because. At this point, then it was it wasn't oh we're gonna have fun night tonight it was am I gonna move the interaction and when you start thinking about that you've got no chance you, you're completely not where you should be you shouldn't you know um and I started looking into this on the internet to see what other problems people had and at the time it wasn't really talked about much but I, I kind of where I saw it but I saw somewhere that it could be to do with you know overuse of pornography mm. I thought that's an interesting thought and it's just something I wasn't really conscious of but I almost certainly was even then you know a bit older you can't ever quite cut the uh, the tenacity that you have as a as like a fourteen year old, but as a uh, eighteen year old, nineteen year old, you can still crack out three or four a day if you try, um, which I did. And uh, I remember the first time <laughs> uh, realizing this might be a problem. I was very skeptical. I was like, well, I guess this kind of makes sense because you know we've got a limited amount of seeds, so to speak. So I gave it a try, and it was so hard. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but as in. Uh, I remember thinking about all I need to do is just not watch pornography. It was when you're on a computer all day as well, like I was playing with video games and other things and doing physics work or whatever it was. Um, just to, to, to stay away from it when it's there at a finger click away, especially all these websites now, like, you know, everyone knows the Pornhub and new porn, all the rest of it. You go on those websites and it's just stimulation everywhere. Mm. Anything you can think of is at your fingertips. You don't have to pay a penny for any of it. Um, and then you, it was all there at the click of a button. Um, and I was, so, I was amazed. I'm still amazed when I think back to it, just how hard it was not to, not to look at that stuff. Sure enough, I managed, not, not perfectly, but enough that it made a difference. 
to not do anything. And then finally, it was amazing. I remember the first time I actually had an erection for longer than like three minutes. And it was, oh, that was a bit of an emotional moment as well. Cause like, ah, there's nothing wrong with me. As in like, this is fixable. It's not like, but then since then, of course, being interested in self development and all that, um, I became aware of this now. Um, and I would sort of, I would make an effort not to go too crazy with it, but I was not making any more effort than like say like once a day, maybe, you know, and if you keep yourself busy too, there's not really problems. It's only, only really when you're bored that it becomes a real problem. Um, but then, uh, when I started my PhD, um, or yeah, right at the beginning of it, I guess the year before, um, talking about that period of when I didn't drink, uh, it was about that period as well, roughly where I started learning about this whole idea of not masturbating at all. Um, and this seems like a crazy, really, because, you know, masturbation is clearly a natural thing. So people might say, well, why would you not want to do that? Because even monkeys masturbate, for example. Um, it's like, well, that's not the point. Just because you can get this natural chemical reaction in your brain doesn't mean that you should. And you're you're using a supernatural stimulus to do it, almost certainly. You just try masturbating three or four times a day from just your imagination alone. You're not going to be able to do it. Um, if you can, I envy your imagination. But then again, um, I would also suspect that if you can do that, it's because you're using thoughts you've seen from some porn videos somewhere you've already seen, you know. Mm. Um, whereas it's never, never really a problem back when it was only a single image, a, a porn picture somewhere when you're like 14. But anyway, um, so I started to look into this. I was like, well, I wonder then if I just try and not masturbate at all. And so in this same five month period where I didn't uh, drink, I also stopped masturbating completely. And it was amazing how much better that the sex was and with the, the relationship because even after you know tackling the initial problem not getting an erection i'm still then thinking during the during the act like uh well, what if i go a bit soft or you know i gotta think about this next just not actually in the moment not enjoying it and i did get glimpses of this potential power because every now and then you know, might be busy for three days and you can't masturbate because you've been so busy you come back and see your girlfriend or whatever and it'd be amazing like it'd be a real vigor there um um, yeah, so when I started in this completely no masturbating, oh, it was incredible uh, just how much better it made everything else. Say that um, what you said about when it came to sex and things, and you would be dreading it, and and you'd be thinking about other things rather than the actual act. Would you say that that was I don't know um, sort of a neurological pathway, and you were starting to associate sex with pain rather than pleasure, and and that's what you know led the problem even worse yeah because like uh it, when it started to become like it was just wrong really what because it stopped being this is an enjoyable thing i need to do and it started becoming a duty like oh i'm in a relationship i guess i've, I've got to deliver the goods so to speak and off it was it was kind of scary how and yeah, this still affects you to this day because this, this happened after my formative years and i'm sure many people who are younger than us now have got much worse because they've had broadband since they were a kid like, i struggled with this um where my brain had wired itself so strongly in this, this certain pattern, I'm still struggling to fight it off now, uh, although it's a lot better than it used to be. And um, where, so during the act, then I would start just basically imagining that I was somewhere else in a different situation, and your the girlfriend then was just basically a masturbation tool. Mm. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, no one's a better person masturbating than you are. So it would often be tempting to just want to not, not even bother and just you know take care of myself sort of thing, which is wrong. It shouldn't be like that. This is one of life's pleasures being ruined and just purely down to visual thing. What I find when I do manage to successfully stop, and I've gone through many periods of 90 days or more, I've never, I never managed really more than three or four months. 
Um, but you know, I'm, I'm still happy. Again, perfect enemy of good and all that. I'm still happy to manage to do that. It's amazing when I do manage for a while, just how other things become obvious. First of all, um, you'll notice, or I notice at least, that when I was speaking to girls, I was speaking to them as as humans, not as perpetual sex objects, which is something that can easily infect your brain if you're not careful. Um, but that was really freeing. Uh, secondly, when I actually was in intimate situations, I was just enjoying things like just having a cuddle, watching a film, or just the smell of a girl or just a touch would be enough to get me excited. And it just makes it so much better because that really feeds off on them too. Uh, they can tell when you're, when you access that, that, that pure like lust, which which is all part of us, which is built into us. It's, it's very. It's one of the. It's one of the reasons why sex has always been one of the you know most sought after things. Is because it's so good. And when you're constantly looking at porn, it's just you're putting a massive dampener on it. You know, it's it's, it's never going to be the same. So anyone out there struggling who's really skeptical about this. I honestly urge you, just even just try for seven days. Uh, you know, I think, first of all, I think you'd be surprised how hard it is if it's something you just do seriously not to do for seven days. Secondly, I think you'd be amazed at how much better uh, your relationship will get and how much more excited you'll be to see your partner if you have one. Or if you haven't got a partner, the other thing that happens is, um, because when I've been single, I've done this, the, the, the desire to go out and seek a partner massively increases if you forbid yourself from looking on the internet. I mean, end of the thing about it. Why would you bother going outside and and uh, going for the possibility of rejection, etc.? If you can just go on YouPorn or whatever it is, find exactly what you like, which you've already by now probably learned exactly what you like, or at least trained yourself to learn to like certain things. Um, why would you bother? And I think you'd be amazed. I mean, some of the terminology goes around like having superpowers. I wouldn't go that far. But then I guess if you're really struggling that much, then just being normal like a man should be, and having a normal libido is a superpower. Just and it's not just the, the the relationship side that matters. It's other things too. Like if I don't masturbate, um, I'm not getting that extremely bad, extremely elevated levels of dopamine for a while from watching this highly stimulating porn. And it'll be instead that dopamine is used for other things, like we were talking about earlier, the other habits, like trying to learn a language or trying to play guitar or whatever it is, um, or even little things like trying to write my thesis. I mean, there was a period where I got really bad uh, again with, like I said earlier, a lot of the bad habits came back masturbation was one of them and when i stopped that during my thesis writing that was the last few weeks and it really made everything better because i had that energy that mental clarity to actually sit down and do things that actually mattered um yeah it's just one of the things i think you've got to experience for yourself it's just like imagine the way i put it is imagine waking up every day with a hangover but you didn't know any different so imagine how good it would feel one day if you woke up without one you know that's what i would compare it to you just got to try it yourself give it a Give it a month uh, at least if you're really serious about it and just i think you'd be amazed yeah amazing and and i highly recommend that that people check out the the your brain on porn type stuff i believe the 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 founder of it is something along the lines of gary a williams um you know really amazing stuff and, and, and i don't think that that people will actually believe the sort of of effects really which which you which you get from it and and i and and i made the decision you know a while ago that, that i was just going to give up porn there's there's no benefits of it i decided that i wasn't going to make a you know i decided i wasn't going to say to myself that it was going to be a, a 90 day type thing for porn because you know everything's an exception really i think it's just one of those things in life to go all in on so you know so i made that decision i think but when I first tried it, and specifically I tried the the actual no fap thing, 
you know I, I i to this day i still think back and i you know and i can't believe it and i still do it sometimes you know i just can't believe that the the benefits which it gives you the the mental clarity the drive that that is one of the main things which people talk about and and it's sad because there's not really many studies done into it there's so much money against it too i mean when i've mentioned this people in the fo- i've had vitriol directed at me for suggesting such a thing oh, yeah, you, crazy, you sound like oh you sound like some crazy religious person or something which is yeah. kind of funny considering what i mentioned earlier about sort of falling away from religion but sort of realizing that some, perhaps some of the things weren't such a bad idea yeah. this yeah. being one of them i think it's a lot like uh smoking where it was seen as cool you know but but i think that as as time goes on more research comes into it i think people are gonna they're gonna find out for, uh, find out what it is for what it is and that's that's cancerous for relationships it's cancerous for 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 your own sanity for for your own physiological health you know and and i think back to to when i did it that the 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 benefits i have because from a from an evolutionary uh point of view we're, we're designed to to seek sex so in order for us to get that our brain will 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 make us do things like increase our mate value by going after new jobs by by bettering ourselves into by doing all these different things which increase our mate value so as we well we're not killing our drive watching porn we're, we're doing things that better ourselves yeah absolutely yeah it's, it's in that book your brain on porn uh, they mentioned about how there's like two reward systems in the brain like obviously i'm paraphrasing here this is probably not perfectly right but one of them is the dopamine system which is the hunting part which is the seeking out opportunities and so forth which is what you're killing when you actually look at porn because it's that part of your brain really gets switched on and that's apparently that's what drugs like cocaine do is switch that part on which is why people on cocaine are known to be productive or whatever uh and the other side of that is the uh opioid system which is the reward for having achieved something which is what happens when you orgasm it's mm-hmm. that part of the system and that's what something like heroin or opioid drives um so there's those two parts of your reward system you're fucking up with pornography. So I used to, one misconception I had was that it was actually the masturbation act that was the problem. So as long as you don't actually uh, finish yourself off, um, that's all right because uh, you've not actually exhausted yourself. But no, that's not true. The worst part is the seeking out the pornography in the first place. Just you try it. Just try watching porn for an hour and not masturbating. You'll be dazed afterwards. You will really just be done where you are. Just and it, it's shocking how some of the things you do or you don't do it, realize how often you do them cause triggers in you. So it used to be a thing where there are studies now, this chair, for example, um, I wrote my thesis in. So sometimes if a certain situation arises where PC is on, on a certain screen and there's nobody in the home, I get like a, a signal in my brain saying, oh, it's time to masturbate. And it's, it's amazing how you could start to get turned on by things that are nothing like sexual just because that's what you always do. Um, before. It's, na- it's nasty stuff that. But I think actually this this porn epidemic now pornography just like alcohol is one of the world's most you know funded things and so one of the reasons you get such vitriol is because people believe silly things like oh you reduce your testicle test has testicular cancer and maybe you do by like a, a some massive percentage but that's from a tiny percentage to a t- tiny percentage um, and it's just not worth the benefits that you can get from not doing it the self control exuded and all the good things you can transfer to other lives but I think this pornography issue is actually going to be one of the biggest epidemics of the next sort of 20 years, which is going to come to light um, because more and more kids who are growing up um, realizing that this is a, this is a problem and, and just how much damage some kids, make. I mean, there's kids out there eight years old looking at pornography. So like I, I was badly enough damaged from looking from the age of about 14 or 15 when I got broadband. So, you know, I, I feel for those kids, how bad is it going to be for them? Yeah. And you hear some stories of people like injuring themselves, masturbating so much, like physically like burning themselves and, 
uh, other horrible, horrible things. And then people who start looking at stuff that's basically illegal or, or is just outright illegal because that's the kind of thrill they start to need um, because they ruin their brain so much. Well, I haven't actually read um, Your Brain on Porn yet, but the author, I am actively trying to get on the show at the moment. I've reached out and um, trying to sort something out. But um, So I, I'm not too clued up on it personally, but what would your advice or tips be for someone out there now, maybe young, who's starting to realize that it is becoming a problem, but you know they realize that it's not too late to, to maybe make a change? What would your initial tips be for that? I think, first of all, because uh, there might be a lot of social um, pressure on you to do this sort of thing, if you if you know you've got a problem or you suspect you do and you want to stop, just do it in your own time. Don't bother bothering people with it. I mean, it's not something people talk about a lot anyway. Um, so that's one thing, just so you're not under that social pressure. Secondly, your biggest enemy is going to be boredom. I think you'd be amazed by how much time you spend browsing the internet looking at porn if you're, if you're, if you're in that sort of hole. And you need to keep yourself busy. But then this is a perfect opportunity to do all those things you said you were going to do. Be it, you know, play that. Even if it's something else, I'd rather you play a video game than watch porn. That's not, that's not great, but it's still a much better alternative. Um, but, you know, you, that's the time you can use to learn something or or improve yourself in some way. Um, so, yeah, try and make sure you're not bored because um, that's 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 going to be the big killer for you trying to go forward with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And also, as in the book, uh, The Power of Habit, Charles Higgs says that our brain spikes in two parts of the cue routine reward, once at the cue and then once again at the reward part. So just by changing your environmental cue slightly, and then and then by changing your routine, your, by changing your routine. So by identifying what it is specifically that triggers you. So it could just be something as simple as not going into your bedroom until later at night. Just something like this, going to do your work somewhere else. Like these can have you know massive, massive positive implications. Well, yeah. Sorry, just to, just to add on to that bit of story. Um, I give you an example of that with me and the thesis again. Um, so I used to always write my thesis on my computer in a very specific room at the old houses to live in, and uh, when I decided to get my act together, I just started writing my laptop instead. Um, and I wasn't necessarily thinking about this particular thing, but again, I just wanted to be out of that room. But what I found is, uh, after a month of not really going in there at all, because the only thing in that room was my computer, after a month of not really going in there at all, when I finally did go back in there on like a Saturday afternoon, I sat down to the computer on, sat in the chair in the same way. Immediately, I wanted to look. Like it was, I was amazed by just how strong that uh, that that urge was. It's like, wow, this yeah. is this is a, I need to rearrange this room or something because this is a problem. Yeah. Um, and 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 I would say to 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 whoever's listening now that that if you want to change your life in the fastest possible way, then seriously try a try a no fat exercise, the the determination, the drive, all these things which which comes with the mental clarity. You 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 won't believe it until you actually try it. Is is it's harder than the urge to keep eating when you're trying to lose weight because at least with that weight loss is a clear and obvious benefit. With this with the pornography one, it's more subtle. Um. But you will learn it, and you'll and you'll start to realize the benefits. Um, yeah. Going on to to one of the the latter topics of the conversation now, because we have been speaking for for quite a while, and we don't want to keep you here too long. But I know that you are uh, keen into mindfulness and meditation. Mm-hmm. Could you give us some background into your journey into this and the benefits which you've received? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, my meditation is always another big thing that's growing these days, and. Uh, you know, people like Sam Harris will talk to you about that right now. They're amazing people to listen to about this sort of thing. Um, and of course, some of your other podcast guests will talk about this too. Um, but uh, for me, um, I started flirting with meditation uh, probably about, say, eight, nine years ago. Uh, 
shortly after I got to university. And it's kind of it's kind of funny how this all started for me, which which was uh, coming off the back of being really obese for so many years, and you know not really knowing how to speak to people in general, never mind girls. I was really into the whole how do you get good at picking up girls sort of thing, which you know obviously has some not not so positive elements as well as some useful things. But actually, there were some useful things that came out of that, and one of them was this idea of meditation because people in that community are really into self development. So. I started looking into meditation from then on. And I remember the first time I sat down to try it um, after learning about it um, as, as something that can be used useful for, to getting yourself in the, in the right frame of mind if you're out in a nightclub or something. Um, it's funny how some not necessarily positive uh, things get you into doing positive things. Anyway, um, so I remember sitting down and just the goal was just for 10 minutes to just do nothing but stare at the curtains. And oh, it was so hard, unbelievably hard. And when something like that is that hard and people talk about it and you just know there's got to be some reason this must be good. If I, if I can't do this, it's clearly a problem. If I can't just sit still for 10 minutes, it's clearly something to, be, to improve on. Um, and so over the years, I've dabbled in it um, and found it really useful, particularly in the morning if I do it. Um, and these days, I do it every day, at least 10 minutes. I've been using a, a new app by Sam Harris, which people have been talking about, and I, I can also recommend it. Obviously, I'm not athletic or anything. Um, but yeah, just if you're interested in Try that. All the headspace happened in the grid one as well. The Sam Harris app is, is called Weak Enough. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But weak Enough for anyone interested. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, in terms of this thing, uh, I've been finding it really useful, especially in, I've, I've started this new job and there's all these new scenarios I'm in and new, new pressures and things. But you'd be amazed that when you start doing it every day, how often you notice yourself getting suckered into a series of thoughts. And you've got this ability then to just, you know, relax yourself. You're suddenly aware that you're tense. You're suddenly aware that your face is all frowned up and it, it trains you to just, even you just get that little once or twice a day, that, that break from your, your being taken, being in complete control of your mind going down some pathway. It's really powerful tool for that in that sense. Cause then if you can pull yourself out of that, you can often get yourself to do something else, which is going to be positive, be it stand up and go for a quick five minute walk, brush yourself with cold water or something and go back to whatever the problem that was causing you to go down that mental rabbit hole. Uh, fresh and you know that's been so valuable um and one thing i'll say which i did wrong for a long time when i tried to practice meditation i mean i still gained a lot from it was that i used to always lie down and do it because i considered falling asleep to be part of the meditation but uh that meant for 20 minute meditation sessions only really about five minutes because i fell asleep for 15 minutes of it and i've been finding more recently when i've been taking it more seriously actually sitting down upright and like really upright i'm not even like i won't i'll be sitting in a chair just like wooden or something so it's it's like I'm clearly on the chair and I can't relax in that same way. It's so much more potent. Uh, so I would urge anyone out there to try meditation, not not to take the easy route like I did for a while and, and try and just relax into it and sort of fall asleep. Um, and, oh, I've said still for 10 minutes, so, you know. Uh, but actually try and make it so that you have to really try and get your mind under control for half an hour, or 10 minutes, sorry, or whatever it is you want to do. Half an hour would be very impressive. Um and I think you'd be amazed what the benefits are. So it's one of the another one of those things like the pornography, where until you experience it yourself, it's really hard to see it in just another person. So it might not be obvious. You know, well, there's no obvious solution. Why should, why should, not, no obvious benefit. Why should I bother? But uh, yeah, honestly, give it a try. And I think you'll find that some daily situations, be it um, perhaps someone has been really difficult with you, and you and you might be tempted to then say something back to them, which you read necessarily don't necessarily mean, or clearly isn't helpful. But having this in your back pocket to be able to just take take yourself out of the moment for a second and uh, refocus can 
it's going to save you so much hassle down the line. Um, things like public speaking too, it can help with, you know, if you can get yourself relaxed and just in in the presence before speaking to a big crowd, that makes it so much easier. Even now with this podcast, I've, I've found myself tense up a few times. I was like, right, okay, just calm, breathe. And it's been better. You know, it's, 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 it's everywhere. It's always useful. I, th- I think one of the most common misconceptions with, with meditation and mindfulness is when you're trying to convince people, they often falsely associate it with some sort of religious practice. You know what I mean? And they sort of thrown upon it in that way. Um, and so it's hard for anyone to actually find a, a good entry point into it because they think, you know... Th- their minds flooded with images from films and media of yeah. monks and people yeah. like that so they often think that's not me but what would your tips be for an initial entry point would it be simply starting with you know just maybe three minutes at a time or yeah yeah absolutely i mean obviously there's apps out there that can help you like like we mentioned already which will train you in the more detailed arts of, and bringing things to mind and so forth but you don't worry about that if you can just sit down like you say for three minutes five minutes and just do nothing for five minutes. Just close your eyes or open them. It doesn't actually really matter. Um, as part of the meditation, it really shouldn't matter. But uh, if you're a beginner, it is easy to close your eyes because there's less distractions. Um, and just just sit down and just literally count your breaths. That's all you have to do. I mean, if I'm struggling, I just revert to that, and that makes a huge difference. In the mind, just do you know one, two. And actually, it's quite funny. Um, when I first started doing this, you'd be amazed at how hard it is to get to 10 even. Uh, before some other thought breaks into your mind and every time you catch yourself i mean don't don't stress out you've you've gone off track obviously it's gonna happen you're not trained Uh, every time you catch yourself you just restart the count and uh you know and you'll find you you, eventually you can start getting to some high high numbers and it's it's quite pleasing to be able to get to say 140 breaths or something without having lost track of anything um but yeah that's a simple place to start and then you get you can delve into all kinds of more interesting complicated things but even just doing that is going to be useful um, what would you say some of the uh some of the books which have most positively influenced your life are oh that's a good question so obviously there's the the one i mentioned earlier about the selfish gene just because it put everything in perspective uh but i'd say since then we've got that alcohol book uh, how the easy way to control alcohol by Alan car because that changed my perspective on alcohol and um, and it did have such a positive effect in my life for so long. It still does. Um, and I often like to look back to that book um, just to re- recalibrate myself. Uh, another really good one would be uh, that, that the that now habit thing I've mentioned. I've read that book like three times now. Whenever I'm struggling with a project, I just go back to that. And it's so clearly written and so to the point. I like succinct books often. Um, and that was really, really interesting. A book which got a bit of a different flavour, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, and that's opened my eyes to a lot of things that have changed in Britain over the past century. It's a book called The Abolition of Britain by Peter Hitchens. Now, this book is a history book, basically, and it talks about how our culture has changed since the First World War. And it is so interesting. Like, uh, it, it does have a political slant on it, but I urge you to not worry about that, because he tries to keep that down and just talks about uh, facts basically and what has changed and you know you can think yourself whether it's a good thing or a bad thing some of them but it is very interesting to have it all laid out so that's one other one um oh I'll, I'll tell you one book that changed my life big time um and this was back when i first started losing weight about six seven months into it and i was still having problems with depression um which is i haven't really dubbed into that but uh it's a book called it was a book called change your life in seven days by paul mckenna um which is a book which has loads of techniques on NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, um, 
which were revolved around uh, making yourself be aware of your mood. And actually, thinking to it now, in the context of the conversation we just had, it was basically a meditation CD, which came with it, where you count down from a certain number and you would get you to focus on certain things. Um, and that was amazing. That, that, that really helped me before I went to university um, to sort of be aware of my mood and give myself confidence in certain situations. And at the same time as that book, I also bought, another, these are the two first self-help books I ever bought, actually. There's that one. And the other one was uh, How to Raise Your Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon, a famous author who did a really well-known book called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. This book was basically an abridged version of one of the chapters of that. And in that book, I was introduced to the, this idea of journaling, which is where I mentioned earlier about giving advice to a kid would be write down on a piece of paper why you don't want to go to university. Well, this book does that introduced with that idea because what you would do would write down give you some sentences to start and you just say write them down for five minutes and don't think about anything just write down i remember the first time i read those, those books and i saw that sentence i'll write this down and i didn't bother doing it because you know who does i'll do that later but then he really urges you when after like a few paragraphs later if you haven't already done this which i suspect most of you haven't go back and do it please it's like, oh, fine i'll do this since i'm you know i'm at rock bottom in my mood at the time depression and all the rest of it what can i lose and it was absolutely phenomenal um, that just the effect that that's had on my mind. And ever since, I've always been really keen to do any kind of written exercise. And I keep a daily journal, for example, which has been really helpful. And one more book, because obviously I'm, I'm going to quite big list here. One more book, which also was really, really big change in my life, mainly in 2013. is a book by Tony Robbins. Everyone, a lot of people think Tony Robbins is a charlatan. I, that's nonsense. I think it's just because he's so effective, you, everyone gets skeptical. But his book called Awaken the Giant Within... Um, fabulous book it's got so many really good techniques in there for dealing with certain situations in your life and making you think about what's important to you making you think about um what you want to change where you want to be in 10 years time um and little things like they're, they're basically like daily affirmations like daily prayers in a way where you would in your mind every morning think about five things uh like five different things so what am i excited about today what am i looking what, what am i grateful for what am i enjoying who do i love what am i committed to and just ask yourself those five things every morning. And I d I've often done that. And especially when I'm in a bit of a rut, it's really helpful to get out of it. And there's similar things for the evening. Oh, there's so many uh, good exercises in that book. It's, it's gold. I've I recommended that to other people and they've also said the same thing and they've passed it on. Honestly, uh, don't don't believe the nonsense you hear about Tony Robbins. I think people are just jealous of him. He is very effective and I highly recommend listening to what he's got to say. Yeah. yeah. There's an amazing book list for there. So... One of the last questions which I've got for you is, is you've got a PhD in physics. What is the change that you seek to make? I hope that whatever I do in my life, that I can have an impact in some way or another on lots of people. Because the whole thing about, uh, we're saying earlier about um, doing things that are meaningful. And uh, I think that there's nothing more useful than to have a goal that's going to be have some real meaning and some real impact on life. And like, I changed my new career uh, because I'm sure that I'll be more effective at helping people uh, if I can, in this instance, take uh, jobs off their mind or whatever. But it would be literally to just find a way to help the most people that I can with my talents, being being really good at problem solving or whatever it is, um, and really take on that responsibility where other people might not be able to. And what, you know, how can I really get my gift out to the world? The last question, which we ask all our guests, and. Uh, please take some time to, to think about it if, if you feel put on the spot. 
but we often ask if you could sort of distill the lessons you've learned throughout your life and and the books you've read and the experiences you've had into a short message that you would share with the world what would that message be i would say all the things i've talked about so far today and how i changed my own life they all revolve around one thing and that is be self-aware like don't keep avoiding things in your life there's going to be things in your life which you're avoiding and you know it and everyone knows it if you sat down in a dark room and ask yourself what am i doing badly or what what needs to change you're going to have an answer to that question everyone will do for me when i was fat it was you've got to stop eating like a pig and you've got to stop wasting your life in video games and i honestly think you've just got to be brutally honest with yourself i see so many people who aren't and it's not a criticism because it's so easy to be completely oblivious these days with all the options we have for multimedia and distractions but you know the longer you leave it the worse it's going to be and you know deep down if you've got a problem with something be it food be it uh, not exercising be it in a job you hate a relationship that's not good whatever it is you know that it can't last deep down and you've got to do something about it and if you leave it five years you just wish you did it five years earlier i often i often wish i could go back to when i was 13 years old and just tell myself you've got to stop this now because you're going to ruin your body you know obviously i can't and there's you know that you learn from these things but you just wish that the rest of the world could also learn what i've learned in that sense um so yeah that's my advice dr ward it's been an absolute pleasure i'm almost certain that we will do another part to this uh to this episode where can our listeners uh find your work Oh, that's a good question as well. So uh, I've got some journals published, uh, which actually you won't be able to see because they're behind a paywall. So that's no good. Um, yeah, okay. So I, I have a blog, an old blog. I haven't updated in many years, but on, on that blog is some really old things I've written about my weight loss journey and so forth, if you're interested. And also some other things like my struggle with alcohol and my struggle with depression. Um and actually, I've been thinking about updating this blog for a while, so maybe I'll start keeping up to date again. Maybe this, this podcast inspired me to do that. Who knows? Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a very ple- good pleasure for me, too. Thank you very much, you two.